With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. On this episode of Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast, we get in an absolutely riveting interview with Danny Briere. Possibly the best interview we've done so far. And we've gotten a lot of good feedback on last week's interview with Dave Poulin. But Danny Briere on this episode, uh, the thing of dreams, the stuff of legends, Anthony. I think you were uh, pretty excited about how this one went. Yeah, I mean, I, I was excited that, I, you know, Danny's kind of been in our back pocket for a while uh, for, the, for the show, um, just waiting for the right time to, to have him come on. And uh, it was really exciting to get him, as you said, this time of year, because this is the time of year that we always think of Danny at his best. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're recording uh, on uh, the 31st. It comes out on June 1st. And then, you know, June 1st, uh, was game three of the 2010 Stanley Cup Finals when uh, Claude Giroux scores the overtime game winner. Yep. Um, so that's uh, so it's, you know, Briere was in the midst of one of the greatest playoff performance, individual playoff performances ever um, when he put up 30 points uh, in that playoff. Um, so it was great to get him on, and, and he says some, uh, some really good stuff. So uh, enjoy that. And then we got some, we have a bonus guest. Boom, boom, boom! Bonus guest uh, after the Briere interview. Should we tell the people? I guess we'll tell the people. You know, yes. it's, it's another reason to stick around after Danny Briere. The man who uh, many consider, including us, consider the best guy down there on the beat, Dave Isaac. Dave Isaac, first time on the show. We talked to him about phase two, phase three, the NHL's plans to resume. So don't go anywhere. Danny Briere, Dave Isaac on the only Flyers podcast. Snow the goalie. Let's get to it. Hi, my name is Ali Vigneault, coach of the Flyers. Hey, I'm Travis Konechny. Hi, I'm Paul Holmgren. Hi, I'm Matt Niskanen. Hey, I'm Scott Lawton. Hi, I'm Joel Farabee. Hi, it's Derek Graham. Hi, this is Bob Clark. And you're listening to Snow the Goalie. 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 Oh, yes! Ladies and gentlemen, what a moment in Snow the Goalie history. Listen. It's the only Flyers podcast. We all know that. It's the People's Podcast, the Players Podcast, the Prognosticators Podcast, the Presidential Podcast, the Pedialyte Podcast, the Propcast, the Canoeble Cast. Oh, no, no, the Playoff Cast. That's right, because there's no better time in the year to bring in our guest than this time of year. The man, the myth, the playoff legend, number 48 in your program, number one in our hearts, Danny Briere is here on Snow the Goalie. Danny, thank you for joining us. I like the I love the introduction. Thank you. <laughs> he, he, that's the one thing he works on. Other than that, yeah. he, he's like, Anthony that was awesome. here. <laughs> and now I will sit back for the next 45 minutes as Anthony begins to take you through your whole career. Thank you. Well, well Danny, that, thanks again. We, we appreciate it as always. Um, and like one of the things I always like to do is, uh, you know, we get the guests on to start us off is I like to talk about growing up and where you grew up. Now, it's not like you grew up in some remote backwoods part of Canada. I mean, you grew up in Gatineau, which is a pretty, you know, populous area. Um, but t tell us a little bit about what it was like 
as a kid in Gatineau and how you really kind of came into being, you know, a hockey player leading into, you know, playing Bantam and, and, and uh, midget hockey and before you got, you know, before you ended up getting drafted in Drummondville. Well, Gatineau is, uh, it's funny, it's um, on the cusp. It's just, uh, I mean, I grew up five minutes from downtown Ottawa, but it's on the Quebec side. So mm-hmm. uh, pretty much all French. Uh, I grew up French-Canadian. I didn't, I didn't learn uh, English until I was, uh, you know, when I turned pro at 19, 20 years old. Um, I was a little lost at first. Uh, we can come back to that. But Gatineau was, uh, you know, just a, your normal, I guess, uh, I was just a normal growing up kid. Uh, my dad was a huge hockey fan. Um, I remember growing up, we always had, you know, drink playoff time, um, three or four TVs uh, in, you know, in April uh, watching the playoffs. That's, that's what I remember of my, my childhood. That was the best time of the year because there's so many hockey games to watch. And back then you had the, the two conference the one night, it was the Eastern conference. The second night it was the, the Western conference um you know all the tvs would be out showing the games and that was that was my uh, my favorite time of the year but um i grew up uh, my, my parents also built a little rake outside in the backyard um so after school every day i would rush home sprint home so i could go and, and play hockey come in do my homework quickly probably uh not the way they were supposed to be done just <laughs> so i could get back out there um, a quick bite to eat, and we'd be back out playing, shooting pucks, uh, working on different things. Um, a few, few of my friends in, in the neighborhood would, would be there uh, pretty much constantly uh, from you know the time school was done until uh, it was time to go to bed. And on the weekend, it was uh, on the ice the whole weekend. So I, I had, um, you know, I, I was very lucky. I was a great childhood um, and great parents that, that made it happen um especially for someone who loves hockey now did, when when you were growing up did you have anybody um in your area like in you know maybe your neighborhood or, or even just just outside your neighborhood who actually went on to play like you grew up with that actually went on to play in the league no um okay. you know I, I and i i'm still in touch with a couple of my friends that we we played uh, growing up on on that rank uh but none none of the guys that made uh even a, a pro career out of it Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. So t- one of the things that I guess a lot of people don't understand how it works, because there are three Canadian major junior leagues, right? There's the Q, yeah. there's OHL, and there's WHL. Um, what is the process for, you know, deciding which league you're, gonna, you're going to play for? Do you just wait and see which one drafts you, or do you declare first, hey, I'm going to play in the Q, or I want to play in the Q and see what happens with the draft? No, in Canada, it works differently where you belong to an area. That's where you have to play unless, um, you know, whoever drafts you or if no one picks you up, then you're allowed to go to the, the other league. So, uh, you know, I was, I was just as close to the Ottawa 67s as I was to the, the Hall Olympics at the time, uh, where now the Gatineau Olympics, um, you know, and I would go to bo- uh, games in both leagues. But because I grew up on the Quebec side, uh, I belong to uh, to the queue, and uh, when it was my time, honestly, um, you know, I didn't even know at first when I was 13, 14, 15, if I would be drafted. My 15 year old uh, year um, as an underage yet to be drafted in the first five rounds, and and nobody picked me, so I ended up going back to uh, midget U16 for a second year, um, and that's when I started getting interest from. Uh, college universities in um, in the U.S. So uh, we started visiting universities, different places, hockey school, 
Um, and I was seriously contemplating um, going to play college because uh, I was smaller than everybody else. Uh, I didn't think, and everybody was telling me that a, a pro career um, wasn't realistic. So I started looking at, at school and um, school came easy. I was a, a good student and that's why I started contemplating uh, you know, crossing over to, to the U.S. early on. But as I told you earlier, I didn't speak English. So when time came uh, to, to make a decision, um, I was drafted by uh, Drummondville. And I wasn't even at the draft. I had told everybody I was going the college route. And Drummondville still decided to take me with, uh, with their first pick. Um, and at the time, I had, um, I, was, I had decided I was going to Harvard. And, um, you know, that was going to be it. And then uh, Drummondville drafted me and then started thinking about things and realizing that, well, okay, it's a different thing now. Going to school in a different language that I, that I didn't speak uh, was a little scary. And, and that's why I kind of changed my mind along the way and decided to play in the queue. So uh, that's, that's, that's a wild story. See, I didn't even know about the Harvard thing. I mean, I knew, you were, I knew you were looking at colleges. I didn't even know it was Harvard was one of the ones. So that's something that even I didn't know, Russ. And all um, of your research. All Mr. of my research. Mr. I didn't, Scholars I didn't pull that one out. So thanks for that one, Danny. Uh, but uh, so, so then you go to Drummondville. And you know, the three years that you're there, it's an okay team. I mean, you weren't a great team, weren't a bad team. Um, but at the same time, you put up some numbers that were pretty astronomical. I mean, I, I think it was your second season where you were you averaged, I think, three points a game in the playoffs. But I mean, the regular yeah. season, I think you had what 163 points in just 67 games. I mean, what was what was playing there like? I mean, even because that was your that was what your 17 year old year. So I mean, you're, what was playing there like in the queue? I mean, a lot of people thought. You know, the Q was an offensive league. Is that fair yeah. to say at that time? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a very open league, very, lots of offense. Um, you know, unfortunately, we were always a middle of the pack team. Yeah. Um, but one thing is we were exciting. So um, <laughs> I think two of the three years, we had the most goals scored for in the league and very close on that, that third year as well. Uh, but we gave up a lot also on, on the flip side. Um, but we, yeah, we had a very uh, offensive team, um, coaches that, that believed in offense and would let us play. I also had some, some pretty good player uh, to play with. Uh, uh, our captain my second year was uh, Denny Gauthier, who also played for, for the Flyers. And mm -hmm. that one year, he scored 25 goals. Um, a lot of it was on the, on the power play from, from a one-timer. So I got a lot of points just sliding the puck over to him and letting, letting him blast it. Yeah. Uh, but we also had uh, players, uh, there's a player called uh, Lubos Bartechko who played in, uh, in Atlanta and St. Louis, I believe, uh, for a few years in the NHL. Um, he, he, was, he was a great player to, to play with, uh, lots of creativity. Um, and then I had Gordy Dwyer uh, who played for Tampa and Montreal in the NHL also. He was a tough guy uh, to make sure nobody would take advantage of me. Um, <laughs> so I was very fortunate. I was well protected. We always had... Um, a very tough team and, and a high offense, uh, high octane team. So um, it was a lot of fun to play there. So obviously when you're, when you're putting up all these points, right, you're, you're getting scouts are seeing this and everybody starts talking about you. And, and there's no doubt that you were, you know, a first round caliber player. Nevertheless, I think you were the fourth 
person from the queue drafted in the first round in 96. Um, would you say that, uh, that the big concern coming in that you kept hearing from scouts was your size and, and yeah. whether that would play in the NHL? Yeah, definitely. I, I think nobody expected me to put up the numbers that I, that I put up in my first year as a rookie. Um, I remember that year I, I was 140 pounds, 141 at training camp. Um, you know, when you're facing guys that are over 200, 200 pounds, it's a little scary, but, um, I never thought twice about it. And that's why a lot of people were, were doubting, but, um, you know, even myself, the confidence grew when I started realizing that I could play, uh, in the league and I got more and more confident. Um, there's still a lot of comments and, and people saying that I wouldn't be able to, to make it to the next level, especially playing the American League, where um, back then it was a very tough and physical. It still is, uh, but there's even more, a lot more fighting. Uh, we, we were still in the area of a lot of uh, hooking and, and interference. Um, so, you know, again, people were saying, no, we won't be able to make it to the next step in the American League and, and even less in the NHL uh, in the future. Um, but then I had two years of juniors before my, my draft year. So the second year is when I had uh, over 160 points. And, and then all of a sudden, my, uh, my stock kept, uh, kept climbing. And, you know, early, I think in the year, I was ranked somewhere in the fourth or fifth round. And then I was down to the third round at the mid-year uh, mid reports. And then I was uh, high second round um, at the end of the year. And all of a sudden, my, you know, my name just kept uh, climbing and climbing. Um, at the draft, I expected to go somewhere, you know, to be honest with you, I expected to go somewhere between 30 and 40, uh, which would be, you know, early to mid second round. And then the Phoenix Coyotes, who had the two picks in the, in the first round, they ended up picking the, the biggest guy, uh, Dan Folk, who was 6'6", um, earlier with the 11th pick. And then they took a chance on, on the smallest guy with the 24th pick. And uh, it was a little bit of a surprise, a little earlier than, than I had expected. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you're going on the first round. It was a pretty big thrill. And you were at the draft, right? I was at the draft. I was at that one. I, I didn't want to miss my NHL draft. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you really quick? So, like, so Phoenix, right? Like, Phoenix is not a place that I think anybody would ever think of hockey, right? Correct. Um, being a, a desert locale. And for a, a kid who grew up not speaking English, I, I would think that Phoenix wasn't exactly a place that you had ever envisioned yourself as a kid, you know, going out on the rink playing. What was it like to get drafted to a place like Phoenix that's not a traditional hockey town by any stretch of the imagination? And, and yeah, I, I, I'm not saying that I want you to, you know, put phoenix on blast here but like was it a little bit disappointing to not go to a more traditional or a bigger market well first of all when i was drafted it was actually still the winnipeg jets so even though at the draft they showed uh the phoenix coyotes the official move was a week after the draft so um on the stage the one you know i i guess disappointing part is the jerseys weren't weren't finished you only had the logo so i have a practice jersey with the coyotes logo on uh, when I got drafted, but I didn't know anything about Arizona. Um, I was, you know, I hadn't, I didn't even know where it was at the time. <laughs> so, uh, you know, everybody kept saying how uh, nice and the weather was perfect and it was a great place to live. So I, I got excited, um, you know, but more than that, I mean, just going in the first round uh, was very, very special. So I, I didn't care where it was. Um, you know, I, I'm glad it worked out that it was the, the Coyotes. Um, but it, to be honest, no, I, I didn't know much about the, uh, the area or, or the city.
Did you have an idea that they had interest in you going into the draft? I'm sure they talked to you a little bit, right? Yeah, I had had a few discussions with with the Winnipeg Jets slash Coyotes. And and my head coach at the time, Blair McKessey, um, was also um, helping him out, uh, working on the side with with the Jets as a scout. Uh, So I knew there was uh, definitely some interest there from uh, from the Coyotes. So your first four years – uh, in Phoenix was a little bit up and down as far as when I mean that by that is going back and forth between Springfield and Phoenix, which yep. got cross basically a cross country flight every time they called you up. Um, yep. But then your, your real breakout was the uh, I guess was the oh uh, one oh two season or no it was or was it the season after that oh two oh three. Either way, what I wanted to ask you about was you trained with a Canadian. Uh, world's strongest man guy um, by the name of uh, you, you'll you'll remember it better than I will. Hugo Girard. Hugo Girard. Oh, you there bailed you him out. You bailed <laughs> him out. I wanted to listen to him. I was, <laughs> <laughs> but but t- so what went into that decision? And do you think that that is what really kind of you know gave you the 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 body strength that you needed to to become the productive player you became in the NHL? Yeah. Well, and and it's a great question because there's different parts to this. So okay. You know, I was up and down, and you're right. I was up and down. I, I can't even remember the amount of time I made the cross-country flight from Arizona to Massachusetts uh, in the minors. I mean, I, I sidebar here, I have a great story with that. There was one time, um, and I've already been up and down about 10 times in the year, and uh, one night um, I get a phone call. Um, Danny, the Coyotes need you. You need to come pick up your equipment at the rank and rush to the airport. There's a flight in a couple hours leaving for Arizona, you need to be on that flight. They need you for practice tomorrow morning. I was like, perfect. So I jump on the plane. I rush everything. I fly across country, land at one o'clock in the morning, go to bed, wake up the next morning, practice with the team. Now the player who was supposedly hurt is fine. So I don't play that, that night. The next day we're flying to New York because we're playing the Rangers on a back-to-back night, the Rangers in Washington. So I fly back across the country with the team, play in New York. I played, you know, six or seven minutes. We go to Washington. I think I played five minutes in Washington. And then right after the game, we get back on the plane to fly back to Arizona, another time cross country. On the way, about halfway through the flight, I get called to the front. And the GM at the time tells me, when we land, you're going to stay at the airport. There's a flight tomorrow morning going back to Hartford. You're flying back to go back to the minors. (laughs) So I ended up crossing the country four times in a span of about 48 hours where all I could have done is just take a car service from Hartford to New York, follow the team in Washington and get back to, uh, to Hartford to play after that. So it was uh, the air miles. Unfortunately, at the time, the, the air miles didn't, didn't count very much uh, when you fly <laughs> private. So, uh, you know, it was a lot of flying, definitely. Um, but yeah, those, those first three or four years were tough. Um, and then my fourth year, I knew I needed um, to, what do you call it, uh, waiver. Um, waivers if they were going to send me down to the minors. Um, so talking with my agent, we figured that Phoenix was going to be the best spot for me. Um, and I started working with Hugo Girard uh, as well. And the, the reason it was just to get stronger, uh, be a little bulkier. I know the team wanted me to uh, – 
um, to be stronger in the corners, fighting for loose bucks. So I started working with, with Hugo. Hugo was a strongman, did the strongman competition that you, you see on, on TV where they lift boulders and they lift cars and stuff like that. So um, I had all the toys. He had a big warehouse in Gatineau where we would train. Um, but the highlight of my, my training was once my training was done is he would do his training and I would stay around to, to watch him train. It was amazing the stuff that he, he would do. I mean, on the bench press, he would warm up with three plates on each side. Um, that was just a warm up where I couldn't even lift it once. So it, it was, uh, it was pretty impressive. Um, I saw him, sometimes we would go to the gym and he had to walk in with his, uh, his bar, the big, uh, squat bar that you use he had a reinforced bar so we when when most of us walk into a gym we walk with uh, a bag with you know extra clothes uh Hugo would walk in with his squat bar uh into the gym so it was uh, it was pretty impressive uh but it, it, it really helped me it, it was one of the things um that that helped me kind of make the transition from an up and down player to a, a guy that uh, could could stick around play in the NHL. And my goal wasn't just to to play in the NHL, but to be a difference maker on a nightly basis. And I remember that's that's what I used to tell you, though. Um, and he says, "Well, we'll make that happen." And you know, the training was a lot of uh, circuits, um, a lot of free weights, boulders, lifting cars, and stuff like that. So it was it was pretty interesting. I loved it. Uh, I, I I owe him a lot of credit for being able to, uh, to turn my career around. The, the other person that really helped me as well is um, when I started working with a sports psychologist. And, and at the time, sports psychologists were, were very taboo, um, you know, in, in sports in general, because it looked like you had an issue or you had problems. Um, so nobody really talked about that. Um, you know, and I started working with a sports psychologist and he gave me tips uh, on, on how to prepare, on how to face adversity, um, you know, just men mentally, I felt when I stepped on the ice that, yeah, the guy next to me might be bigger, stronger than me, uh, but mentally, uh, I'm way ahead of him. Um, and I felt that gave me an edge. So that was a, a, another person that really helped me out a lot. On the sports psychology note, you know, Carter Hart, I think, was maybe one of the, the guys that a lot of fans kind of focused on as, as somebody who, especially at his age, to be open about the fact that he you know, worked with a sports psychologist so much. I think there was yeah. initially, I don't know if taboo is the way to put it, but I think there was like clearly that, that kind of fracture in the fan base of there, there were some who are like, well, like, is this kid already a head case? Like we've already had to deal yeah. with Briz. Like, is this Briz again? <laughs> um, so would you say like based, based around your experience as a player and then, you know, obviously moving on into a front office role, do you think that not only has the taboo nature of seeing a sports psychologist kind of gone away, but do you think that the amount of players uh, ha has changed? Has it, do you think it's a higher percentage or is it just oh, yeah. a higher percentage that admit it? I, and I've seen, I mean, most teams now have a sports psychologist walking around uh, the training facilities. So it's, you know, it, it, you see it all the time. And I, I wouldn't say everybody's using it, but I would say at least half the team is, is using them um, to, you know, just for, just for help. And, and, to be better prepared to, for, to face uh, certain situations. I, I'm not, <coughs> excuse me, I'm not so sure it's completely gone. Um, the, uh, the, the situations around, yeah, 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 the stigma around it. Um, but I, I know most players are a lot more comfortable and they, they realize how important it can be to, uh, to have the help of, of someone like that. So Danny, when, when you have that first breakout season, uh, with Phoenix in 0102, 
Um, what what really clicked for you? Was it playing with like good players? I mean, obviously you get an opportunity to play with guys like I guess Shane Doan and I guess Lanco had a, a real big year that year. Uh, was that what kind of kind of worked for for you out in Phoenix to kind of get you going in, in the right direction? The confidence was was a big thing. Okay. Um, there's no doubt about that. I had you know chemistry with uh, with Shane Doan as well. Um, but mostly it was just having, finally having a chance to play and, and someone putting you in, in position to, to be successful. Um, I'll always remember that, that one game that I feel turned my, my career around where um, through the first two periods, it was actually against the Flyers, um, a, a game right after, uh, after, right after Christmas. I think it was our first game after Christmas and I was, I had been scratched for a few games in a row and then we made a trade that day and the coach was stuck um, having to play me. Um, and I, even though I was leading the, the team in goals, I had been scratched four games in a row. So we come into that game and um, Ron Francis tells me that you're only going to play on the power play. And we finally got a power play in the first period. So he, he sends me out there and uh, um, we won the face off. Teppo Newman took, took the center of the ice, gave it back to me on the half wall. I walked in, took a slap shot and, and scored on Brian Boucher. So I went back to the bench and I didn't play a shift the rest of the period. So after the, the period, we, we were tied 1-1 and, you know, I had scored on my seven-second shift. Um, we go off for second period and finally the Flyers took another penalty and the coach uh, sent me out uh, again for my second shift. Uh, this one was a little longer. It was about 40 seconds long, but uh, there was a point shot and uh, Bouche left a big, nice, juicy rebound. I went around him and tucked it in for my uh, second goal of the game. And I, that was my second shift. So after the second period, I had played two shifts. Uh, the game was tied at two um, and I'd scored both goals. So um, I still remember uh, Rick Bonus coming in the room and asking me to come to the coach's room. And I walked in and Bobby Francis um, asked me what, uh, if I could play uh, the wing and which side I preferred. Um, being a righty, most guys play on the right side, but I'd never played wing maybe a couple shifts in juniors but I didn't know how to play the wing um so immediately I told him oh yeah I, I feel comfortable on the left side because we had a lot of injuries on the left side so smart he sent me out yep he sent me out on the top line with Shane Dome and uh, Damon Lankow uh to finish the game and I ended up playing with them uh for the next two or three weeks and then Michael Hanzus who was centering our second line got hurt um, coming down the stretch, and then they moved me down to uh, to the second line center spot, and that's how I finished the season. So, you know, when I look back, this this game, if I wasn't ready to take advantage of that moment, um, and that's where mentally I was ready for it. Um, if if I missed my chance there, who knows what might have happened, and I I'd probably you know never get to to have a a serious role on the top two lines on uh, on the Coyotes. You see, and and everyone's going to think that Harvard only wanted you because of your hockey skill, but to be able to to be able to think like that in the moment <laughs> and realize that the left wings were where all the injuries were. <laughs> That's why you want to play on the left. That's a real Harvard education kind of kind of thing, right there, Danny. <laughs> it was well, yeah. It was just quick thinking. It was all luck. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing uh, playing on the wing there, but I, I figured it out. And, um, you know, the one thing I realized pretty quickly is I didn't have to skate all the way back down to the goal line to help our defensemen. So I could be on the fly a lot more. Um, and, um, you know, playing with Shane Doan and uh, Damon really helped as well. 
So the next season is not the greatest for the Coyotes, and then they decide that they're going to move on from you and trade you for Chris Gratton, which I'm sure still to this day they still regret considering how that, that turned out. With, you know, your career turned out, and he was at the end pretty much there. Um, uh, and then you go to Buffalo, and I think that, that you know, obviously that's where everyone really kind of remembers your, your career taking off. But it, it, it wasn't until – I mean, you had a great season the year before the lockout, but Buffalo wasn't a, a, a playoff-caliber team that first year you were there, first full year you were there. Yep. Um, a lot of people say that Buffalo got good because the rules changed. And I argue that Buffalo was just a team that was getting ready to get good. Um, what's your yeah. take on it? I mean, I, like I kind of thought you guys were better than the lockout changed the rules kind of thing. Well, we, we kind of all came in – together and we we all kind of got good at the same time when when you look at the the makeup coming out of the lockout yes the rule helped us and, and the one thing uh, lindy ruff did was he wanted to take advantage of the rules rather than complain about it like like some other teams did mm-hmm. um he went right forward in training camp we watched videos on what they were going to call we wa- we worked on special team um, you know, three quarters of, of practices uh, because he, he felt that there was going to be a lot of penalties called. Um, but, but when you look at the, the lineup of, of that team, when on your third line, you have a Derek Roy with Thomas Vanek and Maxim Fanaganov, um, you know, that's pretty impressive. Uh, and, and they were all kind of coming into their home, their own, other than maybe Vanek, who, who was still pretty young. Um, you know, so... We, we had confidence in, in, in a net with Marty Braun and Ryan Miller. Uh, we were in very good position as well. So um, we were set up for, for success. I, I, I think even if the rules had stayed the same, um, we, we still would have been a good team. Maybe not quite as dominant, but we would have been um, a, a very dangerous team no matter what. Now, do you remember back to that series against the Flyers in the 05-06 playoffs? I do very well. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what, what was your thought going in? I mean, because to be honest, um, and we had talked to Ken Hitchcock. He was on, uh, on the show last week. And, you know, he had said going into like the 67th game of the season or whatever, the Flyers were the best team in the NHL. And then all of a sudden it just start, slowly started to go downhill. Did you guys get a sense that they were, they were ripe for the picking? Uh, nope, in that first round? No? <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. We, um, we played near the end of the season. We played a game, I believe we were in Carolina, and we were flying back home. And then there is a good chance we were going to play the Rangers in the first round mm-hmm. with an outside chance of playing the Devil and a slim to none chance of playing the Flyers. So we took off on the plane. And then when we landed in Buffalo, we were all excited. We were going to playoffs. And then the pilot goes uh, on the intercom and he, he says, uh, guys, I just want to wish you uh, good luck in the first round versus the Flyers. And the whole, pan- the whole plane back there with the players were, went silent because we didn't know. Um, when we left, we were playing the Rangers or the Devils. And um, it's like, and we knew we could beat the Devils or the Rangers, but we didn't want to play the Flyers. That's the one team we didn't feel confident. We had struggled against them during the regular season. Um, you know, in the aura around it, the having to play in Philadelphia in the playoffs, the toughest place to play in the NHL. We, we didn't want to play the Flyers. <laughs> so the whole plane went silent and it was like, oh my God, I hope he's joking. And we quickly realized jumping on our phones that we, we you know, I don't, I can't remember exactly what happened in the games, but 
something you know that wasn't supposed to happen happened and it was a it was a four goal comeback it was a four goal comeback by a team that was out of the playoffs i forget who it was and it and (sighs) beat they beat the beat the devils and end up forcing the we were standing in the locker room on long island because the flyers had played the islanders and so we were fully we were not expecting it to be playing buffalo and then all of a sudden we're watching this comeback and we're like, oh my God, they're going to play Buffalo, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't know how you guys felt, uh, but for us, it was the worst scenario, possible scenario. Um, and going into, I still remember going into game one, uh, early in the game, there's a play where Peter Forsberg gets the puck in, in front of Ryan Miller and he goes around him and he has the whole net to shoot at. And Henrik Tallender from behind dives and, extends his stick and the puck hits the shaft of his stiff uh, stick and, and goes wide. And I remember sitting on the bench thinking, wow, is, you know, maybe the gods are on our side. The hockey gods are on our side and we have a chance at this. And, and then the game just kept going and we take it to overtime and then we take it to second overtime. And all of a sudden we scored. And um, that's when we started believing like, wow, Maybe, maybe we have a chance here. We probably won't win a game in Philly, but if we win our games at home, then, then we can make it to, to the second round. Well, we were, we were upset because the options, we thought we were going to be playing the Rangers. And Philly and the Rangers were like, all right, well, you know, as the media, we get to go hang out in New York for a few days. And the, the difference was we went to Buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, so, Buffalo's a great city. <laughs> it's better now than it was then. Back then, it was you had to go out into the burbs, right? You had to go out to like, I liked That's Amherst. Right. Like, it was really nice out in that section, yeah. Danny, right? But, right? but downtown Buffalo was not, back, back then, was just not exciting. Now they've built it up and it's they a really cool a great, town. Great job. Right? Yeah. They've done a nice job there. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, you know, oh, you you look at that, you make a nice run in 06 and even you know, a decent run in 07. You guys just couldn't get over the hump uh, in Buffalo. Um, I, and, I wanna, and go ahead, you got something yeah, for us? Yeah, I, I do. Oh, okay, so, go ahead. I, I did have a question about, it, it was the 05 season, right? Lindy Ruff names you and Chris Drury co-captains. Yep. Uh, okay. and, and I remember, like, these are, these are my prime years, right? This is high school for me. So I sit back and from a distance, I think that's weird. Uh, and I know that it's not totally uncommon to name co-captains, but how did it feel like, how did it feel to be named a co-captain? And then maybe it's not something you think about in the moment, but you know that eventually down the line, you and Chris Drury are both going to hit free agency at the same time. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering what the dynamic was between the two of you. Uh, one in being named co-captains and two, is there a thought that goes through either of your minds at any point that, you know what, we might want to continue this relationship, this this solid core idea, these, the co-captaincy, and take this show on the road together. Yeah, and my, my initial reaction when Lindy called us in and, and told us that he, he wanted to name us uh, co-captain, my, my initial reaction for first, I was ecstatic. I mean, you know, being named captain of an NHL team was, was an amazing honor. Uh, my initial thought was to look over to my left, to Chris, and say, is he going to be okay with that? Uh, because that's what I was worried about. Uh, but from the get-go, it worked. It, it, it worked perfectly. Um, you know, we kind of split the duties. Uh, each are, you know, whatever we felt co- more comfortable with. Like Chris uh, didn't like um, talking to the media so much. So, you know, I, I took care of that stuff that didn't bother me. And then, he, you know, he would organize uh, the parties on the flip side uh, for the team. So we would split and share the duties. 
You had the hardest. Uh, <laughs> well, well, it felt people. easier for me. Um, <laughs> honestly, when I when I look at, at a dual captaincy, I would not recommend it. It worked perfectly for us because Chris and I were on the same page. Um, there was never any competition between the two of us. We played, you know, he, he centered one line, I centered the other line. Um, you know, we played together on the power play. So we, we wanted each other to do well. I never felt like there, there was any competitive, uh, trying to get a competitive edge on either side, uh, you know, with the coaches, with the guys. Um, but I admit that it's weird. Um, and, and I don't think it's um, – it's something that you'll see very often moving forward in, in, in the future. Um, it was just a perfect match because of who we were um, and, and the respect that we had for, for each other. Now, moving forward, that's, that's very interesting because, um, you know, and they, they were allowed to negotiate with Chris. And so I knew what was going on. And Chris and I had decided early on that we wanted to stay together. We wanted to stay in Buffalo as long as we stayed together. Um, you know, and, and we maintained that line till the end. Um, you know, they, they were not willing to, to spend uh, to keep us both. And, and that's why we, uh, we ended up leaving. We contemplated uh, leaving and going to play together elsewhere as well. Um, but the numbers never really added up. And that's how we ended up in, in New York and Philadelphia. Uh, Chris was from the New York area. It was his childhood dream to play for his hometown team, uh, the Rangers. Um, you know, and that worked out well for him. And, uh, I'd say it, it worked, uh, pretty, pretty well for me as well with the flyers. So we were both very happy. Well, I was going to ask, I was going to ask you this cause I've talked to you about this before. Um, but just for our audience, um, so you come off of the 06, 07 season, which was your best statistical season while you were in Buffalo, 95 points, um, and you're a free agent. And I, I think you told me that you had 20 teams that reached out to you initially, um, uh, you know, in free agency. What was it and how much and how important was was Marty Biron because he was already here and I know you guys are really close. Um, to, what was it that really pulled you into coming playing for a last place team when you had the option to, you know, go to Montreal, your, your home, to, you know, your favorite team growing up as a kid or you yeah. could have gone any number of places. You know, there were a lot of really good teams in the league and the Flyers were terrible and so what convinced you to come to Philadelphia? Well, well, first of all, um, you know, when I, when I got into it, uh, free agency, it was my first time, um, you know, I was, felt it's not what I expected because I thought Buffalo was going to resign me. So when they did it, I started preparing for this and, and I made a list of five teams that I had at the top of my list. Um, you know, and all five teams within the first hour of free agency came in with an offer. So that, that made my, my job really easy. And then at that point, it wasn't even about money because it was way more money that I had ever dreamed of ever making in my life. So um, it wasn't about money at that point. It was, okay, I got my five teams and then now I started eliminating them one by one. Um, Who were the know, five? Was, uh, <laughs> you, you willing to so like, well, we know two yes. of them. We know two of them, right? Yeah. And the first team um, that I eliminated were, were the Kings. Um, okay. I, I liked the, the makeshift of the Kings. Um, but at the time I was thinking too, like if I have my, my top five choice, I think I would rather stay uh, in the East, a little easier uh, travel wise, a little easier with the family 
uh, as well. Uh, number four was the Blues, the St. Louis Blues. I thought they uh, they were going in the right direction as well. But you know, for me, I, I preferred staying in the East. So now the three teams that were left with were all Eastern teams, and uh, we know the Flyers, Montreal, and the third team were the Rangers. Um, and then when I was talking to Chris, um, in negotiating with the Rangers, I talked to Chris and. Uh, Chris told me, he's like, I'm going to focus on the Rangers. And that's when I pulled myself out of the race and uh, just to let, let him, because I knew he wanted to play there and let him, let him go. Um, at, they ended up signing Chris and Scott Gomez. Uh, but I had no idea that they were willing to sign uh, two free agents at, at the time. That might have changed something. I don't know. Uh, but I, I moved myself out of the race to let Chris go there. And, and, um, and then really the hard decision became between Montreal and and the Flyers. Um, you mentioned earlier that the Flyers were in last place, but I didn't see the Flyers as a last place team. When you looked at uh, the players that they had, uh, obviously Marty was uh, a big influence um, and he was kind of keeping me up to date. I, I also knew Denny Goatsy really well. I knew Simo Gagne pretty well. The chance to play with someone like Simo Gagne was very enticing. Uh, but then you look at the young players that they had. And, and I, was, I wasn't signing a two or three year deal. I was signing, I was hoping for six, possibly seven, ended up being eight. (laughs) But, um, but, you know, I was signing a long term deal. And I started looking at the players that was coming up through that system. And you you start right away with Richards, Carter, Upshaw, Loophole, and Colbert. And and I thought, I mean, just just to set up with these five guys, the future uh, of these five guys is is tremendous. So that team is going to be competitive. This team is going to be good for the next eight years. Um, you know, we had goaltending, and I'm on uh, a couple days before free agency opened. Paul Holmgren made the trade for uh, Kimo Timonen and Scott Hartnell. And on the day of free agency, uh, well, that's when they got Lupol, and they also got Jason Smith. So now you have Jason Smith and Kimo Timonen as your, your top pairing. Uh, Coburn coming up. Uh, Ryan Perrant uh, was an, you know, also an upcoming defenseman. So the future of the, the Flyers just looked so bright. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't feel the same way about Montreal. Um, and at the end of the day, I knew I was signing a, a big deal and I wanted to be in a, in a place where I could be successful. Um, and, and I felt the, the Flyers gave me the, the best chance to, uh, to have a successful run and, and have a few run at, at, the, at a Stanley Cup. And that's the way I looked at it. So 07, 08, um, the, and you're right, right there. I mean, the team gets good pretty quick. Um, and you guys uh, end up making the playoffs um, and you make the run to the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, but you had to play Washington in that, in that first Series and they were they were good. I mean, we we saw as the, as the media we thought there's no shot. They're not they're not going to beat Washington. We didn't think you were going to beat Montreal either in the second round. Like how they're going to beat <laughs> Carey Price and you guys did that too. Um, but uh, but you know, talk a little bit about that. You know, getting this team with yeah. a lot of young kids into the playoffs. And you know, and there yeah, there was a few of you who had experience, but not enough in my mind. And then being able to finally get over the you know get them over the hump and, and win that Washington series and go on that run. Yeah, I think that series kind of set us up for the next, you know, four or five years. As far as experience, you mentioned there wasn't a lot of experience in, in that room playoff-wise. 
to give the Carters, the Richards, Lupal, Upshaw, Coburn a chance. Even Timonen and, and Hardinal hadn't played a lot of playoffs in, in Nashville. So uh, to give them the chance to play some, some playoff hockey, some a game seven, going into overtime in a game seven, I mean, that's, that's good experience right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you mentioned the next round. I mean, for me personally, playing Montreal was um, um, – very nerve-wracking after, you know, my decision to, to come to Philadelphia, having to face them my first year uh, in the playoffs. Uh, I, I was extremely nervous uh, to lose that. And, and Montreal, I think, was, were the number one seed. So mm-hmm. we weren't supposed to win. So that was uh, personally uh, a big, a huge victory off my shoulder to, to be able to beat them. Uh, but for our young guys, again, to, to face Montreal, a, a tough place to play, uh, a very loud building in, in Canadian city in the playoffs. Um, Experience-wise, that that first year was uh, was huge, and obviously we got hit by a lot of injuries, and we, we weren't really able to compete all that much with Pittsburgh in the third round. But um, experience-wise, we we gained a lot that year. That Montreal series was also the series of the sand in the uh, hallway right. with the skates, right? <laughs> somebody put yeah. sand in the in the in the in the hallway, so you guys would get sand in your skates. And, and all the players were coming off. And, and the funny thing is the bench is across the ice. So you couldn't just go to the back and, you know, and at the time they didn't have the blades where you would just pop a new one and put the other one in. You had to get, take your, your skates off and then sharpen them and put them back on. You get, you also had to skate across the ice. So uh, everybody was seeing our, our players were leaving left and right throughout the game. So that, that was really weird. I mean, we have no proof and we don't know if it was done on purpose, uh, but it's, uh, it's very fishy. So the next the next season is is your that's your injury year. That's when you got hurt. I think four times. I don't remember. I just kind of remember you were hurt, yep. coming back, hurt, coming back, hurt. It was whatever it was. And I remember it was a, an abdominal injury, and then I think you had a groin injury. Whatever. It was just a crazy year. And then um, yep. I look at that team, and that team's not really remembered or not really talked about a lot. That oh eight oh nine team because you lose in the first round of the playoffs. But there were so many injuries on that team. I mean, that was Carter and Richard's best year uh, offensively with the team. Um, Simone had a great year. Like you mentioned, yeah. Lupul, I think he had 50 points. Hartnell had 30 goals that year. Is it safe to say that if that team was able to be healthy, that that team could have made a nice, a real nice run as well? well there, yeah, there's no doubt we could have made a, a, a nicer run than, than we did. And I, I believe that's the series where – we went down three nothing to Pittsburgh. Is that right? And, yes. and we, we won the next two and then game six, we were up three nothing and ended up losing that losing one after yep. the, we had the Carcillo fight that uh, fired them up. And uh, yeah, you know, if, and, and if you win game six there, uh, you know, like me, anything can happen in game seven. We saw it the following year uh, against Boston, but um, yeah, it, it was personally a tough year. Just, not be able to stay on the ice uh, for me personally. Um, you know, but I felt we had a team that should have been a lot more dangerous than what we ended up doing. So the next year, obviously, that's the, one, that's the, the crux of this conversation, right? We get to not 0-9-10. <laughs> so you bring Pron- – Pronger comes in, right? And that's, the, that's, that's, a, that's a big difference maker in and of itself. Yeah. However – and this is the interesting thing, Dana, we, that no one ever really talks – everybody talks about the playoffs, and the playoffs are great, and we're going to get into that in a minute. But that team really kind of was up and down all season long, never really kind of came together. Yep. I kind of remember it being frustrating, and I remember the players being a little bit frustrated that you guys weren't 
better yeah. than you, you know, better than you were. What, what yeah. do you think was, what, what was it the constant, you know, the interruption of the Olympics of that year and, you know, dynamics in the locker room? Like what, what do you think it was? Yeah, there's a lot going on. There's also, it was the, uh, the HBO 24 seven that started being around. That was, that was annoying too. There's, there's a lot of distractions, um, you know, throughout the year. It's not an excuse. We, we should have been way better than, than we were. I think we, we had a lot of guys that were just, you know, just needed, needed the pressure to perform, to be better. We, we were built that way. Um, you know, and you look at, you know, Pronger is, is like that. Hartnell plays better when, when games are on the line. Ville Leno showed that as well. Mike Richards to, to that degree. Simo Gagne, those are, they're, they're all players that, that play better when, when there's something to play for, it seems like. And it, it was frustrating because, yeah, on paper, we should have had the best team in the East. Um, but we, we couldn't figure it out. And I think in December at some point, we were 14 out of 15 teams in, in the Eastern Conference. Um, you know, and, and unfortunately, it cost John Stevens' job. Um, you know, but it, it wasn't because of John Stevens. It was the, the players just – we just were not performing up to our capabilities at the time. So what, does, what did Lobby bring to that group to kind of get it the ship righted there? He, he brought, he likes to say, you know, you, you got to play with some jam and that's, that's, that's what he brought. He, Lavi is probably the best motivator that I've had the chance to play for. Um, his energy is contagious. Um, you know, but, but at first it was tough. It was tough to change where John Steven was, uh, you know, a lot more in control, uh, didn't show emotion, um, you know, to Lavi, which was the total opposite. And it was tough, I think for him early on, uh, to make the switch because it, it didn't happen right away with Lavi. We, we ended up on, we kept going down on a little bit of a skid before things started turning around, but um, he, he had to put his print on this team and it didn't happen right away. It took, it took time, but I think it's his motivation skills, um, his energy, um, his tactics to get us motivated is really what helped turn around this, uh, this team. So you get to the final game of the regular season. Is this what you're going to ask about, Russ? I no. see you right at No, no, no. This is just All right, go ahead. There, there's a narrative out there that, that Lavi's style is one that does motivate, but, but kind of flames out after a little bit of, of time that there's a reason that he doesn't tend to have a, a very extended stay in the, the, you know, the towns that he gets hired yeah. to. Is it a fair? Is it? Is there any truth to it? I'm not asking. Like again, not yeah. trying to have you like burn a bridge ship, but like, is there some truth to that, or do you think people I, make too big of a deal out of it? I. It's a good question because you know you, you look at at what he's done throughout his career. It seems that yeah, everywhere he goes, it's great for three or four years, and then he moves on. But I I don't understand it because he's not like an old style coach that comes in and yells at you. Um, you know, he motivates you in a positive matter to, to get you going. So, you know, I, personally, I would have loved to play for a, a Peter Laviolette my whole career. Um, he was, I, I loved playing for him. Uh, he was also an offensive coach, obviously. So, so I, I like that. But, um, you know, the, his motivational tactics that he used, um, it got me going. It got fire, us fired up a lot. So, um I, I, I see your point and, and, and we see the trend with that, 
But I, I have a hard time understanding why, because I, I would think most players would love playing for, for Peter Laviolette uh, throughout their career. Good question, Russ. I'll give you credit. <laughs> okay. Um, so Thanks, we, get, we, we get down to the last regular season game. You got the, the Rangers, and it's do or die. Guys, win or lose, you know, win, you're in, lose, you go home. Um, yeah. t- t- I mean, you, you, obviously, you scored the first shootout goal, and then uh, G makes, scores the game winner, and Boosh makes the, the save, and everybody goes nuts, and you guys make the playoffs. But take us through you know, the conversations that are happening leading into that game in, in, in those, between those periods, and what's the team thinking at that point? Well, I think without knowing it, I think we, we won where we started getting an edge on that game the day before at practice. Um, so Peter Laviolette had an, an inch or uh, kind of maybe a, a hunch that we would go to a shootout against the Rangers. So we walked in the day before for practice and, and he took five of us, the guys that would go in the shootout if it got there, and made us watch videos on, on Lundquist. And then he told us to pick a move. And then at the end of practice, we would practice that move on um, uh, our backup goalie. I can't remember who it was. And, um, you know, that's what we did. So I I knew exactly what I was going to do if the game got to a shootout. And usually whenever I got to a shootout, I would always come in on the goalie with two or three moves in my head. And then depending how he would move, how I would feel coming down or what I would see, you know, I I would pick one of those two or three moves, but on Lundqvist in that, that special game, uh, I knew all along I had my one move and all I had to do was execute perfectly for it to score because he's, he's a great goalie. So that's why I say we almost started winning that game the day before without even realizing it with, with Peter having us practice the, uh, the shootout. Um, I still remember that game. Um, we, you know, Jody Shelley ends up scoring early in the first period and then we're peppering, Lundqvist all day long and we just can't solve them until late in the third period when Matt Carl beats him and uh, there's a comment from uh, Lundqvist who said it was one of the toughest games ever had to play uh, because it felt we were in their zone the whole game and the Rangers played I felt they played for a shootout I mean you can't blame them they they were great in shootouts they had probably arguably the best shootout goalie in the NHL and we were the worst team in, in shootouts. So why not take it there? Um, they were really good at blocking shots at keeping teams to the outside and letting Lundqvist kind of make the saves. And, and that's how that game, you know, we, we, we were fortunate to score late, take it to overtime ends up in a shootout. And, and that's where we were. Uh, I came down, I knew exactly what I was doing, but before that, when I, I jumped on the ice, you know, I, I remember thinking for a moment, I'm like, Oh my God, like, this is huge. This is going going home and going golfing tomorrow, or you know we're going to the playoffs. This is a this is a big shootout. And then I, I remember telling myself like, okay, you got to stop thinking that right away. Get that out of your head now. Focus and and just look at the net and just see netting. Don't even see the goalie. You know your move. You know what you have to do. Just come down and and do what you have to do. And I can't even tell you to this day, I can't even tell you what the crowd was doing when I was coming down in the shoot. I don't know if it was quiet. I don't know if people were screaming. I don't know if they were standing or if they were sitting. I don't remember anything else, but you know, me, the puck and, and the net, that's all I could see. Um, it worked out, um, you know, and, and Bush made a big save on, on Jokin in last. Uh, but it, it was definitely one, one great memory that I, uh, I don't mind recounting over and over again.
It's the kind of moment that, like, as a kid, you have to dream about, right? Yeah. Having, like having the game on your stick and, and in that case, you know, get your yeah. team set up on a Stanley Cup run. That Correct. Totally improbable at the time. It's wild. You know, I, I remember going to bed when I was young, uh, dreaming about scoring an, an overtime playoff game. Um, you know, and, and that was pretty much that's what it was. And that, that's the part where, you know, shootouts are entertaining. Um, but the part that I don't like, it's, it's too individual. Um, that's the part that I don't like. I, I prefer the three on three or um, at least there's a team concept involved rather than, than the one on one. Um, but there's no doubt that that was, uh, that was a big moment. So one of the little known story, well, it's come out since, but one of the things that you, you handled it really nicely um, in the, in the, in the moment because you knew not to really put it out there publicly because it might've tipped Boston off. But I've, and I've told this story several times. I remember you telling me after you lost game three to Boston and you're down three Oh, that you felt, that you guys could come back and win the series. And like, we yeah. didn't, it wasn't a public thing. You were like, don't put, don't write this. Just, <laughs> well, we feel like we can do it because then you knew if you get it out there, then Boston's going to respond differently. But what was it about being down 03 at that point that you sat there and said, yeah, we can win four in a row and, and win this. Yeah. Thing? The, there's, there's a couple, there's a few reasons. First of all, I mean, the way we had played, we didn't deserve to be down. We, we felt we should have been down up to, we should have been up two one or at the worst case, down to one. Um, we felt we had a better team. Um, you know, with, I mean, with Chris Pronger back there, anything can happen to you. He, he was our superstar. Um, and, and we knew he could control uh, a game by himself. So we had that going for us. The other thing too is in game three, Mike Richards had the big hit on, on David Krejci. And we knew he was hurt. And we, we were hearing the rumblings that he was done for the rest of the series. Mark Savard wasn't at his best. I mean, their offense pretty much went through David Critch uh, at the time. Um, and then on our side, Simo Gagne was coming back. He was really close to, to coming back. So all these little things added up. And we were sitting in the room and, you know, just talking around with, with the other guys. And we all felt that we could come back. And I, I've been there a few times. Um, in, in a dressing room where we're down three nothing and basically you're trying to save face. You're, you're thinking about the next game and you're, you're saying to yourself, okay, we, we got to save face. We got to win at least one. You don't want to be swept. Um, but to think that you can win all four games, next four games, you know that's unrealistic. In that case, it wasn't. We really strongly felt that if there was one team that could do it, that was us. And um, you know, there, there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, I had a good hunch that we would win game, game four at home. Now, to me, the key was game five. And, and that's probably the game that is the least talked about in, in this series. People uh, just go over it and go to game six and game seven. But to me, game five was the key because uh, it's the toughest one to overcome. Now you've saved face and you've got to get back up and win a second game in their building and you knew the Bruins didn't want to fly back to Philly. So they were going to play their best game to end it right there in game five. So if we could just win game five, game six, we're back at home in Philly in front of our fans, almost unbeatable at home. So that, that should go in our favor. And then you're up to game seven where anything can happen and the pressure is all on the Bruins. So to me, game five was the key and the least talked about game. And then, of course, there's game seven. 
and it, you know everybody makes everybody everybody talks about the timeout right down three nothing lobby calls yeah. a timeout and you can read his lips on the bench he's saying just yeah. get one before the end of the period and we'll be okay yeah. and then jvr gets that fluky goal when you guys go back to the locker room are you kind of like yeah he's right we could we're in this now and, we, and we're gonna we're gonna pull this out you know is that kind of what the mentality was at that point maybe for some guys not for me okay uh, my, my mentality and and I, I couldn't even I, I knew what Lavi was saying, but I was so livid. I was seeing red. I was so mad that we had worked so hard to get back in the series. And then within you know the first 10 or 12 minutes, we were down three nothing and we we're gonna give it away in like this, like it, within the first you know half a period. Um, I, I, I couldn't see it. But the one thing now, you know, we're, we're 10 years past, when I look back. I realized what Lavi was saying because one goal, now the pressure starts shifting on, on the Bruins. You know, they were up 3 nothing in the series. It was 3-3. They were up 3 nothing in the game, and then things started changing. But at the time, I didn't see it that way. I, I, I was too angry to, to realize it. Um, after the first period, when we came back in the room, yeah, you start thinking, okay, we have a chance, but why, why the heck did we get out that way? Why are we giving them a, you know, a three, one lead going in the second period? So it's very, very quiet in the, in the dressing room after the first period, guys just sat, sat in their stalls. Nothing was said. Everybody was angry. Everybody knew we could play so much better. Um, you know, and coming back after the second period, it was a total opposite. It was like a party in the dressing room. Um, it's yeah. almost as if we knew we, we had won, you know, it felt every time they touched the puck, they were so afraid to make a mistake because all the pressure was on them, uh, as far as, you know, looking like they, they were choking. Um, it felt like none of their players wanted to touch the puck. They were getting rid of it left and right. Um, you know, we felt after the second period that it was, it was ours to lose at that point. We were in total control of the game. Have you ever gone back and, and yeah. watched the, the game? Have you ever like, because I could tell you, so NBC Sports Philly ran the game, I think like a week or two ago yeah. and watching the Boston, I don't like Boston fans. Okay. <laughs> Everybody says Philly's the worst, blah, blah, blah. Boston fans are disgusting. You don't have to say it. I'll say it for you. It's fine. But watching the Boston fans celebrate when the Bruins went up 3-0 in that game and just seeing the elation on their faces and seeing yep. like, oh, these flyers, they thought they could come back. Ah. And then watching as their joy turned to utter sorrow and just, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's honestly, you don't end up winning the Stanley Cup, but I, I'd almost say that beating Boston and just ripping that kind of elation away from them is almost as much of a win in my book. <laughs> I don't know if you've gone back and watched it, but I have to imagine that that, that has to kind of feel good when you can feel the entire uh, yeah. energy in the arena just totally flip on its head. Oh, yeah. I, you know, part of it when I was angry was, was, seeing those fans just jumping all over the place, you know, being so excited about it. And my dad was in the crowd too. He had driven from Ottawa to Boston just for the game that day, you know, and that's what I was thinking. I was like, Oh my God, he's stuck in that crowd. Uh, they're probably just making fun of him. Um, and, and I'm not going to lie to you when we ended up winning at the end of the game, one of my biggest thrill was actually looking up in the stands and watching the faces of the fans just leaving the building disgusted with what had just happened. Um, I, I did enjoy that quite a bit, actually. <laughs> That's awesome. 
I, I know we only have you for a few more minutes, Danny. So I, don't, I mean, I don't. I know there's a lot more to get to, but we'll just. I'll try and condense into a couple of quick questions here at the end. Um, when you when you look back on your career, obviously, you know, you say, "Oh, you wish you could have could have won the Stanley Cup," right? But when you look at specifically that that run from the 07, 08, I guess through probably through 2012, um, is that the biggest regret that that team didn't find a way to win? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, to me, there's there's two times. I, I felt um, the, the year coming out of the lockout uh, with the Buffalo Sabres, um, we ended up losing the Carolina in game seven. Um, we were decimated by uh, injuries at the time. We had five of our top six defensemen uh, not playing in game seven. I, I felt we had the best team left out of the final four. Um, you know, but, but I realized at that point that winning a Stanley Cup, uh, there's a lot of things that need to line up for you. Uh, matchup is a big thing. Injury is a big thing. Uh, luck is a big thing. So the, there's, uh, you, you have to be good, but there's a lot more into it that, that, gotta come, in, that come into play. Um, and, and to me, the other time was obviously 2010. Um, it, 2010 is different, though, because I, there's no regrets there. Um, I felt that we, we left it all out there. Chicago uh, was a little bit, bit better than us. Uh, they deserved it. Um, you know, but, but we, we gave it all we had. And, you know, nobody expected that run. So that was pretty cool to see how the Philadelphia fans came, came on and came, were behind us uh, throughout that run was, uh, was really cool and something that I love. You know, Russ, you talked about watching that, that game. And uh, one of the coolest moments, now, um, for me, is looking at a video on YouTube and seeing in a game seven, they show the Wachovia Center at the time. It was a Wachovia Center where the crowd, first of all, they didn't expect to have uh, that many people show up. So they weren't ready for it. Uh, but to see the crowd being from, you know, when you're down one, two, three, nothing, our crowd was also dejected to all of a sudden th this big party happening when they, the comebacks start happening and, and to see that you're affecting so many people and there's not, not even anything playing in front of them on the ice. It's the jumbotron mm -hmm. uh, for a team that's playing, you know, six hours away in Boston and, and they're so ecstatic, ecstatic to watch. And to me, that that's when it really hits, hits home when I see that video of uh, the fans, you know, jumping around and, and the team is not in even in front of them playing. So um 2006 and 2010 were probably the two years where I feel I was the closest. Towards the uh, end of your time with the Flyers, uh, on two separate two separate occasions, you um, took young players into your home. You took Claude Giroux first, and then you took Sean Couturier second in, into your house to have them live with you for a year. Um, can you just talk about you know what it meant for you to be a mentor to those guys who are still today among the best players in the league? you know, and leading this Flyers team, which looked before the break, like it was before we were paused, like it was going to make a uh, significant run into the, into the postseason. I mean, it, it's pretty cool to see them still playing. I mean, I, I think Sean is still getting better. Um, you know, <laughs> every year he seems to, to keep getting better. I mean, Claude is still um, one of the best players in, in the league. But um, honestly, it was a lot of fun having them around. Um, I was going through a tough time in, in my life personally, going through a separation. So to have these guys around with me um, was refreshing. Um, I, I know I get 
credit uh, for taking them into my, my home. But honestly, they, they brought just as much to me, um, keeping me young, keeping me closer to the younger parts, uh, players of the team. So um, it wasn't a one-way street. These guys did a lot for me as well. And um, you know, I, I, I really, I, I owe them a lot for, like I said, keeping me young, keeping me close to, to most of the players on the team. And I'm sure they were like video game freaks with your with your sons, right? Well, I, I was. Um, I would say I was probably uh, a little closer with Claude. He was more of an uncle to to the kids. Uh-huh. That's probably the best. I was closer in age with with Claude. But when Sean came in, um, he was only two two years older than than my oldest son. Um, so there was a lot of video uh, games going on. And when Sean's parents would come to town, he would be upstairs playing video games with the kids, and I would be you know, drinking a glass of wine with his parents downstairs. So it was a little weird. Danny, I have one last thing. And it's a hypothetical that has bothered me for a long time. And I want to know what, which one you think might've had more of an impact. So we go back to just in the, the aftermath of the Stanley cup run and the following off season, the trades are made of Mike Richards and Jeff Carter. The, the dry Island thing has been brought up a million times those two get shipped out. And then mere months later, Chris Pronger's career is effectively ended. And, and I, obviously, you know, if one happens and the other one doesn't, you're probably still more of a contending team. One, we had Peter Luco on the show about a month ago, and he kind of broke down the behind the scenes of what the trades of, of okay. those two look like. Um, were you blindsided by it? Or did you feel like for whatever reason, there, there might've been a, an idea in the locker room that, you know what, the, the team really might look at moving on from these guys. I, you know what? I, w- I was surprised that we moved on from both of them. Um, I had the feeling that uh, changes was coming and that a big trade was coming. And I, I had the feeling that one of the two uh, were going to go, but I didn't see, and I didn't expect to see them both leave uh, in that, that off season. Um, but when I look back, um, you know, I, I think it was a trade that worked out better for both the Flyers and, and Mike Richards uh, or Jeff Carter um, because these guys were kind of at a, at a crossroads in their career. And, you know, I think they were maybe a little too comfortable here in Philly. It was their team. And um, I don't know if they had really the drive to, to, take, to take it to the next step. And when that trade happened, I think both of them kind of changed their vision. And then all of a sudden realized that, okay, um, we better put it back in in high gear. We have a lot to prove here. So I I think it was good for them. Um, And then you look at the players, players that are still uh, on the flyers today, the, you know, Sean Couturier from that pick, uh, the Jake Voracek. Um, I know uh, Simmons, Shen and cousins have moved on, but um, you know, from Shen, you, you also have, uh, Morgan Frost, who's up and coming. So there were still a lot of good pieces that, that came, came out of it. And I know the Kings ended up winning the Stanley Cup uh, with both of these guys. Um, but I, I don't know if they become as good of a players if they stay with the Flyers. Last thing for me, Danny, and we can wrap it up. I, you know, I, as much as I'd like to talk about the end of your career in, in Montreal and Colorado, I really wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about you know, now being a hockey executive and what that's been like for you over the last few years uh, running the main uh, franchise up in the ECHL. Um, so just if you could, just kind of take us through that. And, and where do you see this going? Like what's, what's next for you uh, after, after this? Well, I, I don't know where it's going. 
Um, one thing I can tell you is I, I'm enjoying my time. I'm trying to live in the moment. Um, I know a lot of people, you know, have goals and where are you going to be in two years and five years and 10 years? Uh, honestly, I'm, I'm living my dream. I'm still involved in hockey. Um, I get to learn on, on a daily basis, something new, uh, on the business side, because that's not my background. Um, you know, so that's, uh, that's, I, I love that side of it. Um, it pushes me, um, you know, it, being a little bit uncomfortable, uh, at times, uh, in what we're talking about, but it forces me to learn. Uh, I love that side. And then, you know, running the hockey side is, is a lot of fun because that's still my passion. I love hockey. Um, so, you know, we're talking, I talk to my coach pretty much on a daily basis about players, about, um, you know, lineups, about changes, about trades and stuff like that. So, um, I, I get to touch on a little bit of both sides. Who knows what the future, uh, will bring, but I, I feel that I'm still learning. Um, and, and that's super exciting. I mean, uh, honestly, I would love to move up at, at some point. Um, I'm, I'm involved on the business side with the flyers. They're giving me the chance to, to learn what's going on uh, on a daily basis with, you know, uh, marketing, uh, some finance as well, some social media, uh, ticket sales, uh, corporate sales. So it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, we'll see where it takes me next. Uh, but it's not like I have a deadline to achieve. Great. Well, Danny, thank you so very much. We really appreciate your time. This has been a, a, a wonderful hour of uh, just talking and catching it up with you. It flew by. It flew. Uh, yeah. That's it goes always fast, fun. Yeah. It's always fun going after uh, talking about great memories. Yeah, it's good stuff. Well, thanks again. And I'm sure hopefully uh, it won't be too long before we can see you down at the building again. Uh, I hope so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hopefully, hopefully uh, at least by the fall, maybe, or maybe the late fall or early winter, uh, we'll yep. be back together again. We need so. some hockey. Yep. All right, Danny, take care. Thank you very much. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, Russ. Thank take you. Take care, guys. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the interview with Danny Briere, the much touted, the very look forward to. Anthony, we had uh, one of our friends from over in Scotland, Danny Brandon, reach out this week and say that uh, I guess there must have been something when he was, he was younger and he was playing hockey. Uh, somehow he got tagged on some official tweet. They thought it was Danny Briere's account, and it wasn't. And he was uh, – he said everybody called him Danny B, and all he wanted to do was try to make Danny Briere proud every time he played. So it's our friend over in Scotland, you know, because we're trending yeah. in five different countries charting every week, which is pretty cool. That anyway. is cool. Um, so, yeah, that was a great interview. Danny's a – you know, like I like I've said many times, just one of, the, one of my all-time favorites in my time covering hockey – and now we're bringing in uh, Dave Isaac onto the program. Dave, well, first of all, thanks for joining us. We love having you here on Snow the Goalie, first time joining us. And so welcome to the program. Um, but you've, I mean, you were a beat writer now for a, a decade. Am I right about that? Yeah, I, this was uh, season number nine for me. So knock okay. on the door at 10, yeah. Okay, I knew it was close to that. Um, so you've covered Danny as a player. Yeah. Now I've, I, I like I said, I, I've, stated that he's one of my all-timers as far as you know guys to cover in the locker room where, where does he fit for you yeah he, he tops a very short list of guys who are, are always just an unbelievable interview number one uh number two i think in in those nine years i haven't come across anybody else who has been able to break down the game that had just transpired maybe five six seven minutes earlier um, any quicker and, and, and any more insightful than Danny Rear did. Uh, certainly, you know, everybody kind of talks about uh, you know, 
his his persona off the ice and and all that, those things. And you remember what he did in 2010 in the playoffs, uh, a really good performer on the ice as well. Uh, the one thing you you might remember this, um, I couldn't pinpoint a year, but he he was dealing with an injury, and it was an upper body injury. And I guess somebody had written that it was it was his ribs. And we're all waiting for him after after practice, uh, and he's taking his gear off and not really saying anything. And he, he has his back to to the, the wall of reporters waiting there. And he goes, "You know, I guess I should thank you for for writing that it was my ribs because that's not where I'm hurting. But everybody's been slashing me there for the last ten days." So <laughs> that, was, that was kind of a classic Danny Breer story. That, that I always think of what I think of Danny. Yeah, he was just just a, just a great guy. And it's funny, like he he had mentioned in the interview. Um, that he had said that when he first became captain in Buffalo, it was uh, him and Chris Drury together. And he said, he, Russ had asked him what that was like. And he said, you know, well, we, we actually split the role. He said, I, Chris didn't like dealing with the media. So I talked to the media and Chris planned all the parties. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess that that's where he got plenty of practice for Philadelphia by being the co-captain in Buffalo. <laughs> But uh, anyway, uh, so Dave, we, we wanted to bring you on to kind of talk about um, the NHL's return to play. And you know, it was outlined, um, this is going to be airing on uh, June 1st. So this was outlined at the end of, uh, or it was last week when uh, Gary Bettman came out and, and, and mapped it all out. And we've been talking about this for a while because, you know, it, it had leaked out that it was probably going to be a 2014 kind of playoff. Um, what we didn't quite know was how the draft was going to, work and they kind of map that out and it's incredibly confusing for the late for the average fan but we wanted to talk to you about it and kind of you know get your thoughts I mean you, you know a what you think of of the of the what they did to put this together and then b how you think it will impact the flyers if if at all in, in any way positively or negatively well, when you come out of a layoff this long, and I guess we still don't really know exactly when, probably late July, early August, if right. they you know, do end up returning to play, uh, that's a pretty long layoff. There's really going to be no great formula that works for everybody. So if you're a believer of uh, momentum going game to game and the Flyers were so hot, they drilled up, what, nine straight before they lost to Boston, uh, their, their last game before everything shut down here then, you know, everybody's kind of starting from square one. I think from a fairness angle, this is probably as close to what you can ask for in, in, in fairness. Um, I, 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 the seven teams that, that aren't coming back, they shouldn't have. Like, right. I, I, why are you going to ask the Detroit Red Wings, who have tried to lose all season, to, to come back and, you know, lace up the states for a handful more just to try and get that number one pick? Like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, the the play-ins, I mean, that, that adds another little bit of a level of, uh, you know, intrigue, I guess. Uh, this is probably the best that, that, that you could ask for. The one thing that I guess I'm a little bit surprised about is the fact that the NHL is kind of first, right? I mean, we haven't heard much about formats. I mean, the NBA is still kicking things around. MLB is, is looking into their books in terms of uh, who's going to get paid what. Like, it seems like the, they're way in the – in the rearview mirror here and I'm kind of surprised that the NHL is, is at the forefront because that's not usually their MO. I mean once the NBA shut down they were quick to do so the next day that made a whole lot of sense but everything when I think of the NHL isn't really as much leading as they would like to to be doing um, and here they are actually kind of first to 
to kind of put their, their toe in the water. And, and it makes a lot of sense when you think about some of the things that Gary Bettman said with no Olympics, you know, this summer, there's that big TV window there and they've got the NBC contract anyway. So some of it makes sense, but I'm still, I found myself raising eyebrows a little bit and kind of saying, wow, I can't believe they actually were, were first to try some of this stuff. So when, when you look at um, from the Flyers perspective, obviously now they, they don't have to play in the play-in round. Um, they get a quote-unquote buy. Um, what's your take on the doing the, the three-game round robin to kind of determine seeds one through four? I, I like it because there was that argument, and I guess there still is the argument, that all these teams that are playing in that aren't in that top four have something to play for to kind of ramp them up for games that matter. This does that. The, the Flyers, if they win all those games, could get the number one seed in the East. Uh, mm -hmm. It gives them something to play for where it's not just an exhibition. And these guys are going to need exhibition too. Like I think Elliot Friedman said that, that there's going to be two exhibition games. Uh, th those are going to be sorely needed, I think. So it, it gives them a little bit something more, some more skin in the game um, when it comes to you know, you're back from, from zero to 60 and everything is on the table and, and there's a lot to lose. I think this gives them, you know, something to play for where it's, it's not just going through the motions for a couple of games and waiting to see who they face in that first round. Well, I guess, I guess the, the one question I have off that is this. So, um, and, and, and you, you mapped it out exactly right. I mean, they're going to, they're going to need, every team's going to need um, some exhibition, but if you only have two exhibition games and the rest of these teams, then after two exhibition games have to jump into a do or die playoff series, do these top four teams, because seeding really, I mean, it matters, but it really doesn't matter. Do these top four teams kind of look at those as three more games that are kind of exhibition-y type games with just a little bit of meaning attached to them? Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair because not only does the seeding not matter, like once you, everybody's kind of going to be starting from scratch like we talked about, right? So High seed, low seed, doesn't really matter who you're facing. You're not playing for home ice because there are no fans in the building. Right. Everything's going to be a neutral site for, for all these teams. So, yeah, I, I guess in that sense, there, there probably is a little bit less to play for. But uh, I, I still like that it at least gives them some kind of incentive to not, you know, throw out the black aces uh, for, right. for a game and just kind of, you know, get them some action. You know, like they're, they're, they're going to need uh, the, the Drews, the Couturiers, the Provrovs to be, uh, going out there full force so th th this at least gives them a, a venue for it but like you mentioned it's, it's probably not as as meaningful as as these play-ins are you worried at all that um something happens and it doesn't get concluded in other words that we maybe have a little bit of an nhl virus outbreak of some kind i know they said it was announced i guess today we're recording this on the 31st it was announced today um that they're going to have um test daily testing in the nhl um but i mean let's you know i don't know if one guy gets it's probably not a big deal maybe even two or three but if all of a sudden like a locker room has a handful of guys that have the coronavirus does that shut this whole thing down again yeah, that's something I've thought about. Like, if, if you, a, a few guys on one team have it, are you going to let other teams play? Are you going to have them forfeit? Like, I think that kind of has to shut it down. Right. You know, because they're, they're, even if you put everybody together, like the NBA is doing in, in Disney World, it looks like, they're all going to be close-ish, where it's, I, I don't know if you can really go on after a handful of guys on, on one team. Uh, I don't know what their magic number is, but I think there, there is a concern for that, sure. 
to me though, I think that the bigger concern is probably something happening globally that, that sets things back from a coronavirus standpoint where they may not even get to that, that point, you know, and, and things have luckily been, been looking like they're trending in the right direction. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I just see it as, as a bigger potential problem of them not even taking off in, instead of maybe something happening once they do. Any thoughts on the hub cities? I don't think it's um, going to be, I don't think it's going to be in Canada at all. I think that they're all good. I think they're both going to be in the U S it sounds like that's going to have to be yeah. the case with the whole, you know, 14 day quarantine, the NHL right. saying that that's a, a non-starter for them. Um, and it's kind of interesting that everybody assumed, well, it would be one and one. I guess that definitely takes out of the equation, everything happening in Canada. Right. You, you could have had that too. If you went Toronto, Edmonton or Toronto, Vancouver or whatever. Um, yeah. I, I think it's kind of interesting to, to see it'll be interesting in a couple weeks when maybe they weed out some of them because I think they kept it at 10 to see if, if something goes wrong in one of those cities they become a, a hot spot again you can just eliminate them and you still have these other viable options it's going to be interesting to see how they do it like I don't think it needs to be one from the east and one from the west just because everything's going to be neutral site anyway what does it matter and when you looked at what was it, Toronto Pittsburgh, Columbus. I don't know how many others there were in the East. Like That's I it. think there were more options in the West. Yeah, there were yeah, seven so, out West and three in East. So if you wanted to do it geographically, then all of a sudden Chicago, which is a Western Conference team, could be a more viable Eastern Conference option. If you wanted to go that way. But again, what does any of it matter? Uh, right. you, you're just picking two neutral sites. So I, I, it'll be interesting to see what those cities are. You know, like. And I think we can... We could definitely rule out uh, Minneapolis now as well. Oh uh, yeah. So that uh, it's so the official list was Chicago, Columbus, uh, Dallas, Edmonton, Vegas, L.A., Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, Toronto, Vancouver. So like I I get the rationale behind why you guys are thinking that you probably rule out the Canadian cities, but do we really think that if there's not another boom, if there's not another wave between now and say three weeks from now, that given the importance that hockey has to Canada that they're not going to look to potentially make an exemption to the 14 day quarantine that would have to go into effect. Or maybe they they're in communication with Gary Bettman and they say, look, if this is when you think camps are going to open up, get your guys in now. So middle of June, you're just saying, look, you, these guys are going to have to report to these facilities earlier than the teams that are going to be stateside. I, I think that's what's going to happen. If, if they want, I think that that's how they're going to kind of um, try to further their bid to be a hub city is to say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll let the 14 day quarantine slide um, and, and we'll make an exemption for you. I, I, I kind of expect that to happen. Um, but the way that they're talking about it now is almost just kind of negotiating in public, I guess, a little bit um, in that sense. I mean, the U.S. has, has made uh, pro athletes essential workers, which sounds like, you know, they should have just said exemption for that instead of making them <laughs> essential workers i think that kind of uh, demeans what what some of the people do in, in hospitals and keeping people safe and alive but uh i i think that yes to your point absolutely i i see that being uh, an option i think that's probably the most likely thing i'd be surprised if one of them wasn't toronto when you when you look at the resumption of play and you look at the the teams that are in the playoffs and you look at the, the first round matchups and stuff does any team stick out at you as a team, you say, you know what? They're a lower seed, but because they've had all this time off, because all their, you know, they got players who get healthy 
and you know, and they got maybe a decent first round matchup. This is a team to you know watch out. They could make, get on a little bit of a run. Yeah, well, I think because everybody's kind of starting from square one, there's the, the seeding, like you said earlier, doesn't matter quite as much. But when I look at teams that benefit the most, St. Louis was really banged up. You're going to come back, and, and because this is now the playoffs, you don't have to worry about the salary cap. You don't have to worry about hiding Vladimir Tarasenko before he's, you know, while he's still healthy and can't really join because of the books yet. Um, I, I don't know if there's a team lower down that I'm, I'm just looking right now at, uh, at the standings. And you, you look at a team like New York and you say, okay, the Rangers were on a pretty good run, but momentum's wiped out now. Like every, everybody's kind of got to start over a little bit here. Yeah. Uh, Columbus, I guess that's another team. They're, they're yeah. pretty low in the standings and now they have an opportunity to be healthy. I, I think that's probably the biggest factor is uh, how much time some of these banged up teams have had to heal and getting Seth Jones back, if that's possible for the blue jackets is a pretty big deal. Yeah. And I, they were really banged up on the whole blue line. And I like, I, I mean, yeah. that's the one team that I looked at, especially in the East and say, you know, Columbus is a team that I think they can, if they're as, if they're healthy, they could beat Toronto. Um, Toronto has got defensive issues out the wazoo. Uh, and even when they're healthy, and, and then, you know, you look at Columbus and say, well, you know, where, what happens after that it depends on who you, who you match up against in the second round. I mean, so that's a team that, that scares me a little bit in the East. And I think you're right with St. Louis. I mean, they're the best team in the West. They're defending cup champs. They had a lot of injuries, but that's, you know, now if they're healthy, they're going to be the, they're going to be the toughest team to beat in the, in the Western conference uh, pretty hands down. Um, it's almost impossible also to, to kind of project who the Flyers are going to play too, right? Because by virtue of them yeah, actually having know. these, you know, these round robin games that they, they can get up to what second? No, they can get to one. They, they, they can, can get, get to one if they, if they went out. If they went um, all three, yeah, they can get to one. The, the well, other and then the other thing, it's still, it's still up in the air whether this is going to be a bracket or reseeding. Exactly. So that, that yeah. Kind of, you, from both ends, you don't really know what's going to happen. So at one point, it was looking like well, who would it have been? Pittsburgh or Pittsburgh or Montreal? Right. If, if they had and, held and it for. Yeah. It was interesting. I think, I think it was after Bettman, not his, uh, his initial statement, but was the, the second follow-up with Mike Tirico, where he talked about um, that the players seem to be leaning more towards wanting to do reseeding and, and getting away from the bracket. I think the NHL probably saw this as a, as a potential, you know, massive injury because March Madness was canceled. And the idea of having some kind of a bracket challenge would be, you know, hugely marketable. And they clearly wanted to go that route. But he did say multiple times that if that's what the players want, it's almost like if the NHL is going to give in one, one area, it's going to be on this reseeding thing. It is interesting to think that like, if a team pulls, you know, what you would consider to be an upset, none of it actually matters. Like you, you genuinely don't know who any of these teams are going to end up with because everybody's so closely bunched together. Dave, did you feel like, if they were going to do a weird thing, if they were going to go this like bracket route where they were going to just kind of, you know, go this reseeding and round robin and everything. Did you consider, you know, with the idea of them doing two hub cities, maybe this would have been a time to roll out ranking these teams one through 24 and having conferences not matter because you're really not traveling. You're in two hub cities and building a bracket that way. Did, was that something that you had thought about or, or would have found interesting for this one off season? I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, that is, that is intriguing because it, everything about this needs to be a one-off, right? So uh, I hadn't thought about that, but that, that, that would be another kind of interesting way of doing it. And another, like you mentioned, I think the bracket idea was from a marketing standpoint, something that they were really looking for. And that could have been another one. 
um, was to try out something completely new. And I, I, I don't, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of any big problems that I have with that. Speaking of something completely new, I think that there's great intrigue with the draft in the sense that, all right, we're going to have the initial draft uh, in June and you're going to have the seven teams, but then they're also going to have uh, placeholders for the teams that lose in the first round of the, of the play-in. So you're going to know going in, now not to say that anybody's going to try and, you know, tank a, a playoff series. Nobody's going to, I mean, everybody's going to try and win a best of the best of five and, and advance into the playoffs. But it's really kind of an interesting thing if, let's say that you're a lower seeded team. Let's say you're Montreal, right? And you're the 12th seed. And you find out that that, that slot wins the first pick in the draft. You really then have, are now got to weigh an option internally and say, are we good enough to make a run past one round or two rounds in this playoff? And is, it worth, is that exchange worth it to potentially get the number one overall pick in the draft who could be a franchise-changing player for years to come? I mean, I think that that's a really intriguing possibility that could, that could play out here. So that's the one thing I haven't looked a lot into. So when they say placeholder, does it just remain placeholder until until when? after like, until after the playoffs? But it, you, I, oh, that's why after the first round. Yeah, but, I, but, does, but does the team know? Like your your example with with Montreal, does it does it know that it's the twelfth seed? You know what I mean? Or is it just a placeholder, some random team, and then after? that playing round, you find out who that team is. I think it's by the team. It, I don't think it has anything to do with the seed because the, I, I have it pulled up here. Like the way that he explained it was that if it's a team that's not resuming for first, second, or third, that spot's locked in. So like best case scenario, if you don't want to have your, your brain, you know, you know, leaking out the side of your head is get three of the teams that aren't participating in the tournament, have them get the top three picks and then everything goes in reverse order based on uh, regular season right, right. percentage. Like that's right. the easiest thing. What it sounded like is after the fact, if, if in that first drawing, somehow the flyers got that pick or, or somebody did, right? Somebody who's one of be these, the, wouldn't be the wouldn't flyers. Be flyers, like one of the bottom, go with the Canadians. Montreal ends up getting that pick because they're resuming. They're going to leave that space as presumably it's going to be open unless they win and if they somehow win in that first round series it gets that spot gets freed up again and now they go and they do a redraw but if Montreal does win it then yes Montreal would keep would keep that pick if they lose in the first round which is weird because like if you're if you're a bottom table bottom of the table kind of team like Anthony was pointing out and you know that like your worst case scenario is you come into this thing you really don't belong in the playoffs in the first place. And if you win, you're probably going to lose in that first round of the, of the playoffs, the first official round after the, you know, when the Robin, round Robin teams are in, or, you know, you lose and you get a better pick. Like, I don't know why any team would, would even make a, an earnest attempt to win. Right. Like you take the pick, you have to, right. I mean, Anthony's always the guy who's like, Oh, well, St. Louis last year, nobody gave them a chance, but it's like, they're an anomaly. And, like, as weird as the whole season is, like, it's not as if Montreal had nine players that were legitimate, you know, top 40 yeah. talent in the yeah. league that they're I, getting I, back I, from injury. I want Dave to answer the question, but I will say this. You look at Montreal, Russ. I mean, Carey Price is Carey Price, still one of the best goalies in hockey. 
you get a hot goalie in the playoffs, any, anything can happen, you know? So it is, it, to me, it's an, it re, that's where, to me, there's a lot of intrigue. So I'm, I'm still a little bit fuzzy on when the team learns that they are the placeholder. Not until after they get eliminated. So okay. you wouldn't, so you technically wouldn't know. Okay. But you, you, what I'm saying is, is that you could sit there and say, oh, well, a placeholder team got that pick. So maybe could be, it could be oh, us. Okay. What do you what do you weigh between the two? Like his exact wording was: any phase one draw not won by a non-resuming club will be conducted among clubs eliminated in the qualifying round. Right. So, so there'll be a second. There'll drawing be a second drawing for all the, including all the teams that have been eliminated. So you have a one in eight chance of getting yeah. that pick. If you, if you, if so, if we know a placeholder team is pick one. One of the eight teams eliminated is going to get that pick. So you know, okay, if we lose this round, we have a one in eight chance of getting the number one pick. That's pretty, I mean, you know, that's a pretty good number. That's what, 12 and a half percent? I don't know. It's so horribly convoluted, but it's okay. (laughs) Well, I guess then the question becomes when, at at what point in, oh, so this is all going to be, you're going to know that it's a placeholder team before the series even begins. Correct, yes. So it's, I guess, at what point in a best of five, right? Yes. At this round, or are you going to say? Well, they, they, oh, again, geez, that's, to be, so. that's to be determined, too. I mean, they're talking right, about right. that, that. They said the best first two rounds. Best of five or best of seven. Yeah. It's either best of five or best of seven, right? So at some point in there, in that series, you're going to say, okay, we're down one game, we're down two games. That's, that's when you would – that's when that, that thought would reasonably enter your mind, I guess. Throw the black aces out there for game three. <laughs> yeah. I can't see a team doing it. I mean, I get where you're coming from, but I, I, it's, I but it's wild, right? It's a it wild is. thought. All, all of this is wild. <laughs> <laughs> it's nuts, and, Dave. And when I saw all those contingencies, it was, it reminded me of the, that stadium series game in Philly where it's like, well, if they've completed two thirds of the game and it's raining, uh, then they'll, they'll finish it indoors on a Thursday when it's not <laughs> raining. And it's like, geez, <laughs> what is this? It's it. There, there's a lot to to contemplate here to unwrap here, um, but I think that the the, the tanking is done now that uh, Detroit has finished its season. I can't I see any team in a in a series saying, you know what, I'll I'll take my chances in the pick. I know that Anthony and I had gone back and forth on this a bunch about, you know, Gary Bettman, smart business guy, would likely want to be the only show in town for a while, and so the thought was that maybe the NHL tries to rush back and be available first, which I think ended up becoming a lot more complicated because of how many guys lived outside of the country and, and we were going to get in all kinds of travel issues that the NBA, for example, wouldn't have. Now that the NBA has announced that their return to play date, their hopeful return to, day plate, or to play date is July 31st, it seems that that is going to be ahead of when the NHL is going to legitimately, realistically resume play. Are you surprised that Gary Bettman allowed the NHL to get preempted by the NBA? Uh, well, like I said earlier, I was a little surprised that any of this was NHL first. And once he kind of got on that, that train of thought, um, no, I guess I'm not. But I'm also not convinced that the NBA is out of the woods either. Like now that Brazil is a, a, a hot spot, like I don't know off the top of my head, I'm not a, a, an NBA follower, but there's a pretty large contingent of, of NBA players that hail from Brazil. I don't know how many of them went back there during this this pause but um they could have some some hiccups too in terms of bringing bringing players back uh i i think that they were always going to come back around the same time just because they naturally start their seasons around the same time um 
but I guess if the NBA kind of, you know, sneaks in right in front of the NHL, uh, I, I think they're coming back roughly around the same time anyway. So not, none of the order would, would surprise me, I guess. But uh, if, if there was a large gap, then, then I would be pretty surprised in, in either way. Have you thought at all, Dave, about what next season might look like schedule-wise? If, if they're starting in January, I don't see how you get 82 games in because you, you would inevitably have to affect a third season now mm-hmm. if you were to try and get all 82 in. And at the start of this, I thought they were just going to can it all and, and say, you know, well, they don't want to affect two seasons anyway. That was one of Bill Daly's big talking points. Um, so it made the most sense just to, to can it. And then it became clear how much money they need to make, both from the owner side and, and quite frankly, the players too. If, if they're thinking, like their paychecks are all done, nobody gets paid in the playoffs under normal circumstances. But if, if players are thinking, well, this could help take, you know, shave a few percentage points off of escrow in the next couple of years, then there's incentive for them to do this too. But I, I, I just don't see how next season is going to work any semblance of normal. If, if you're starting in January, and I could totally see the NHL trying to do the marketing thing and start off with the Winter Classic, that would make sense to me. But how, how far are you going to go? Like, when is your season then going to stop? I, I don't know what that's going to look like. I, I would have to think that even though they kept repeating 82-game season, 82-game season, at some point that's going to have to change if they're going to finish up this season. Too. Right. I mean, especially since, I mean, they said, oh, well, we'll eliminate the All-Star game and we'll eliminate, eliminate the bye week. Yeah, that's not enough. <laughs> I mean, what's it, what does that give you? An extra five games, six games for a team, right? Right. I mean, if you're starting January, you're talking normally you're at about the 34, 35 game mark at that point. I, I don't see it either. I don't see how they – I mean, yeah, maybe you extend to the end of April and you go right. – maybe you go a little bit longer into June with your playoffs. I mean, that you could do. You can add a couple weeks. But, I mean, I still don't see how you make up all those games and unless you're really jamming them in, you know, three or four a week. Yeah, I agree. There's, there's going to have to be a point where they say, okay, this is going to be a 75-game schedule. I, I, I don't understand how you could do 82 games and start in January. I know they're probably going to try and push it, but one of the other things that I had heard was, uh, you know, one of Gary Bettman's thoughts here was in, in pushing this forward was to beat that second wave. Maybe he's thinking that second wave is going to take it out of, out of the equation for us in terms of decision-making anyway. So maybe it gets pushed back or eliminated or whatever because of a second wave anyway, and he's just trying to, as you know, players take that cliche one game at a time, he's, He's trying to think about the, the smallest sample of things that he can control right now, and that's finishing this season, at least make some money out of it, where if there is a second wave, maybe it doesn't start till who knows. Well, Dave, listen, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on today. And, and before we let you go, um, Russ and I have, have been saying here on the program, like we were talking about, you know, when um, – when you let, got let go and how awful it was because we feel that, you know, you, you are the best beat guy that's down there day, you know, day in and day out covering this team. Um, and I, I know you, you know, you might not be able to say anything with any specifics, but just for the, because we have so many Flyers fans who do listen to the program. Is there anything coming for you down the road? Do you, are you, you know, talking to anybody, any, anything kind of, kind of out there to maybe give them hope that guess what Dave Isaac will be back in the building once there's hockey down at the Wells Fargo center again. 
I, I wish I could uh, lend some <laughs> optimism there, but uh, no, there's there's nothing on the table. Uh, I think it, at this point, with everything still shut down, I don't think anybody's really uh, e eager to you know spend more money. And not that I was very expensive to begin with, but um, I, I made no decisions. There's really no options for me at this point. So um, that's something I would certainly consider if there was a way to to come back to the beat. Uh, one thing I'm not doing is leaving Philadelphia, so I'm not going to relocate to a different market at this point. Uh, my wife and I have kind of set set things up here in, in the area, so uh, definitely not moving. But if, if something opens up in the industry, certainly something to consider. Um, but that, that's that's not what I'm looking at at the moment. So uh, that would be a, a great option to have if it were out there. Well, I think we might have to we might have to start a uh, a push campaign. for a campaign. <laughs> To get Hashtag. I, you know what though, I, I could see you going the same route that like Derek Bodner did, like four or five years ago, where I think he left it was Philly Voice at the time and started his own site, did it like almost as a Patreon set of subscription, ended up you know blowing up huge. I think he was making more money doing that. He like quit his other job. I could see there being enough uh, enough interest there. So I think we're gonna have to start this thing going, Anthony. I think we're gonna have to uh, get Dave back on the beat because. Uh, I, not I miss being the, there is, is I miss the jersey fouls. I miss I'll miss all the the jersey <laughs> yeah. fouls that you would put out. They were my favorite like my favorite tweets. And, and what percentage are you guys getting to represent me? Let's, let's <laughs> We don't need here. any percentage. We're just <laughs> We're just Russ your... is the greatest hype man in the history of hype men. I mean, he... I'm just a yippee chihuahua who just barks <laughs> into uh into the abyss. Uh, well, anyway, Dave, thanks again. We really do appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, you know, be, you know, be well, stay safe out there. And uh, hopefully, you know, we'll all be down in a building watching hockey again someday soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, guys. Be well. Yep. That, ladies and gentlemen, was Dave Isaac. Great to have him on the show. First time, Anthony, we tried to get him in the summer to talk about like the whole, you know, the history of, of him fall, you know, being on the beat and all that. We couldn't get the logistics work, but we got it to work this time. Happy to have him on. Sits right there next to us in press row. Get to have good chats with him down at games. We do need to get him back up and- 100%. Now look, I think, I think there's one of two things that needs to happen. And I don't know what the best way to go is. I do think that the Patreon route would work. I think he would definitely get enough people. And so this is what we need people to do is one, tweet at Dave that you would certainly pay, you know, a, a Patreon fee to get his, his content because I think it would work. Um, let them know that you heard them on the show, support all that kind of stuff. Um, I think, and we said this at the time that he was let go, the, the intelligent play here would be if the athletic would pick him up and allow Charlie O'Connor to do the stuff that Charlie really excels at, which is a lot of the, uh, player specific things. I think he does a really good job on that. He's obviously the, the lead writer for analytics in the city allow him to kind of go into to those kinds of, of stories, those kinds of articles, and really delve into the, the game from that angle and have Dave take over, you know, uh, the, the heavy lifting on the day-to-day the -day stuff that he does so well. Problem is, you know, the athletic, I'm actually surprised, to be honest, that they're, uh, they're still afloat. I saw they started to lay off uh, a bunch of their soccer writers, which is where they were making real inroads internationally um, as they were trying to expand their empire it will be interesting to see what they look like when this is all said and done. That to me would have been the number one, maybe the inquirer. Like, I don't know. The inquirer is its own uh, mess and that that's a sinking ship. Well, NBC sports Philly is the other one that well, they make, should. Would yeah, make that sense. would be, that would I mean, make a lot of sense. We talked about, you know, Jordan hall, friend of the show, uh, 
you know, that he does a really solid job doing the player profile pieces, especially um, does a well, lot I mean, of their online content stuff. But they, so here's, they here's what, here's, use. here's why Dave would be great there. If you know, I mean, as you know, um, their writers go on TV, right? A lot of times and, and they've done it. I mean, you know, you see Salisbury all the time on television for, you know, with the Phillies. Yep. Um, uh, you see Ruben Frank on TV all the time, you know, for the Eagles. They haven't put Jordan on TV this year. Um, prior to this year, uh, prior to Jordan being the lead guy, um, you had uh, John Bork. John Bork, who was on TV before Bork, you had suits. Yeah, before Bork, you had Panaccio, who mm -hmm. they put on TV. Yeah, I, was not good on TV, but they put him yeah. on TV. Um, they but they didn't put Jordan on TV this year, and that's because they, I mean they have Taryn Hatcher, I guess, is their full-time person who's you know on the television but she's she's not reporting on the team so she's basically just in the locker you know interviewing guys and in the locker room post game she's not at practice you know she's not a reporter covering the team dave would be ideal in sure. that as you see as you know you listen to him on our on our podcast here he's a good talker right i mean he's he would be good on television mm -hmm. um so, so to me, that's an ideal spot to land, to land him. Um, but I don't know if that company's got enough foresight to sit there and say that's what we should do. Hey, hey, hey. We were making nice with Comcast for a week, okay? Last week, we were fine. Now, you're out here calling out Comcast Spectacore. Stop it! It's Stop. not Spectacore. They're a Stop. separate brand. NBC Sports is part of NBC Universal. They're not part of Spectacore. It's a completely different entity. They're related doesn't mean, enough. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean that they that they're run any better. It just means that it's a there separate entity. Okay? Here he falls goes. On, falls under a completely different thing. I didn't want to be at war. I wanted to make peace. I wanted things to just kind of settle, man. I just wanted things to be good. I wanted a kumbaya moment. You know? I just wanted yeah. I just wanted us to get to sit down with some of these people that just don't like us and just say hey. It's fine. You know, it's, it's okay. It's okay. Not a big deal. Listen, uh, a, a few things, a few things of note. And I want to address this. This was a controversy that happened on Twitter this week. And you're not even aware of it. I didn't talk to you about this ahead of time. And uh, I, I just uh -oh. wanted to point out. So I pointed out that Snow the Goalie, the Only Flyers podcast, was trending globally, not just in the U.S. charts. We, we've been there, done that. We were charting in the top 200. We were actually number 175 globally in sports podcasts, not hockey podcasts, sports podcasts in the world. And so I, I just happened to mention that on Twitter and on Facebook and said, you know, of course, the only Flyers podcast knocking down the barriers. And I had somebody on Twitter who, I saw this. who attacked, attacked the Snow the Goalie account, attacked it. This. And said that it's a, it was like a blossoming or a, a, a vibrant community of Flyers podcasts that are exponentially better than ours. I like the, word, the, the use of the word exponentially, better than, than ours. And, and then I checked and I'm like, this person follows the Snow the Goalie account. They follow me and I'm pretty sure they follow you. Mm -hmm. So you did, you put, I, a, you put a meme out. I did. I put the joke over the head. And then yeah, they sent Superman one of, joke like, over the flipping, head like flipping, flipping me off. Yeah. And they sent one back to you. <laughs> yeah. I was like, come on. It's like, if you follow the account and you follow me and you follow you, you know, the bit, like, this is the thing. 
we've had people on from other shows. I've been on other Flyers podcasts. We've had this conversation. But apparently some people don't get it. They but don't hey, get that we are in fact the only Flyers podcast. I don't know how they don't understand. But Russ, you're, you want to, you know, you want to heal. You want to bring everybody together. You don't want to be in good graces. No, right? I don't want to heal everything. I said I want to heal our relationship with the fine folks over at Comcast Spectacor. I didn't say I want to heal the divides that exist. Listen, there are some Flyers podcasts that we get along with very well. We have nice back and forth online. There are some podcasts, or one, that hate our guts. And that's fine, too. You know why, Anthony? Because we hold love and joy in our hearts, okay? We are always welcoming and open to have discussions with walks of every life with podcasts of every kind there's not a person out there who we would not have on our podcast that's not true that is not true are you serious yes like you could think of people right now that you would not let on this podcast yes i don't know maybe maybe i'm maybe i'm much more of an open-hearted person than you are i would not allow scott stevens on this podcast (laughs) (laughs) do you want me to keep going uh, I invite anybody to come on, friend or I would, foe. I would not allow RJ Umberger on this podcast. Seriously, I was going to reach out to nope. RJ. Nope. Why? Nope. Oh my nope. God, I, I swear to you. Oh, I know. No, hold on. Not RJ Umberger. Luke Shen. Because oh, Luke Shen okay. wouldn't give the 22 back to Canubal. Sorry, <laughs> RJ. We have the same initials. I'm not going after you. <laughs> I was going to reach out to RJ. I was going to have a good sand. relationship. You can go pound ice chips. I don't care. Luke Shen. Not allowed on the podcast. Not allowed. Yes, I got a funny. I got a funny story for you about RJ Umberg. I'm gonna tell it real quick. No, no, you save it for if and no, when no, no, no. Because it'll be a funnier story. It'll be even a funnier story then if we ever get him on the show. So here it is. So he gets traded from the Flyers. He goes to Columbus. Mm-hmm. Ken Hitchcock's the coach in Columbus at the time. So we go out to Col- the first time the Flyers play out play uh, Columbus the next season with RJ on the team is in Columbus. Right. Um, and Hitch is the coach. So I go into his, I go into the um, coach's office, like Hitch usually does. He invites you in and he sits there and he goes, yeah, Anthony, it's been real tough on RJ. You know, he's got a flyers tattoo and everything. And you know, and this is, this is really hard for him to have to not play there and come to Columbus. So I write it. I write this story to which then RJ Umberger calls me. He's like, what the hell, man? I don't have a Flyers tattoo. Where are you getting this from? <laughs> like Hitch told me. He's like, uh, he's like, Hitch was pulling your leg. <laughs> so, so RJ called oh, me up to, to complain about it. And then I had to go to Hitch and Hitch, Hitch just laughed when I said, I put that in a story that you told me he had a Flyers tattoo. <laughs> this is all your fault. You might be the worst. Uh, so anyway. You should so, be ashamed yeah. of yourself. So hopefully we'll get RJ on. We can talk about that. That'll All be right. Fun. So anyway, fine. RJ Umberger, more than welcome on the podcast. Are there people I wouldn't allow? Sure, there are. But you know what? Listen, this is the thing. Here's the thing. We are open and welcoming to podcasts of every kind. We are. Do I want to have crossover pods all the time? Maybe. Are we welcoming? Are we open to it? Possibly. Maybe. If those people want to reach out, we, we can have that conversation. But uh you know, my favorite thing is though, Anthony, we do have, and listen, we have some great fans. We have some great listeners, people that we love and cherish. Do you know that I get at least three DMs either on Facebook or Twitter every week of somebody who follows the show, listens and says, hey, if you ever want to have me on as a guest, I'm like, hey, you know what? Maybe we're going to have to do a fan edition. Maybe we're going to have to have a show. We have Zoom. 
We have the professional Zoom, thanks to San Filippo. Maybe we do a fan edition where we have like 50, 50 different Flyers fans just hop on and talk about their favorite thing about Anthony San Filippo and his outfits when we did the live stream. Maybe that's what we have to do. I don't know. We want to hear from people, though. So follow us over on Twitter, at Philly at Joy on Broad, at Snow the Goalie, Facebook.com slash Snow the Goalie. What? I, I got one more thing. You mentioned getting DMs. I figured I might as well do this one. I might, yeah, I've not told you about this, but I'll, but I'll let you know. Um, we have a, uh, have a guy. Are you replacing me? You're replacing no, me on this I'm show. Never, that would never get, got a DM. Okay. Never replace you. Go ahead. But uh, a good little criticism for you, Russ. For me? Yes. Oh, he can burn. <laughs> Do you want me to say who it's from? No. Okay. I, I mean, it's not anybody. It's just a fan. It's not anybody famous. I can yeah, give but what you if the, it's somebody who's nice to me in public on Twitter? And he like, has some good things to say about you, too. Okay. Okay. So Fine. it's not like it's a, a, Well, I don't know. It's a DM, though. Are you, are you breaking their trust by, by telling me? All right, then I won't say that. I won't say his say name. The name. I won't say the name. Okay. The name. So it starts off with uh, ASF. This was uh, this was after the Deneen interview way back, um, back at the end of April. ASF, great work with the Deneen interview. Your research really came through. Good stuff. Your journalistic skills and years of Flyers coverage really shows. You have to talk to Russ, who I love, and have and have him, uh, who I love, and have him to simply ask the guests a question versus his pontification. Uh, and then he goes on to then he came back a second time. I answered him and, and I said, oh, I said, that's just, you know, how Russ is. He's great. He's awesome. I think it's, it's sometimes it's, I think he's sometimes better in person than he is on the zoom. Um, and he goes, Hey, you might be right. And then he says, comes back last Tuesday and goes incredible interview with pool and just great, great anecdotes, but we still need to harness our boy, Russ. His follow-up question to the Lindbergh, Lindbergh incident was over a minute and a half long. <laughs> So he's timing how long you are People, no. asking your questions. No, no, no. <laughs> there is a way that you build rapport and trust with the person that you're asking questions. Uh, Anthony over there has got, you know, 60 years on the beat. You know, people believe in him. He, he covered their parents. Me, on the other hand, I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy recording on a Thomas the Tank Engine table in my basement. Okay? <laughs> this is how I build rapport with these people. Okay? So if I want to ask a question that takes a minute and a half, I'm going to ask a question that takes a minute and a half, but I do appreciate the kind words. So thank you. Yeah. Did you, you want to know what I said to him? You don't want to know what I, how I defended you? Sure. Do you, I'm, I don't, I'm I'll, sure. Go ahead. Okay. I said, People I have sat through this show for over an hour and a half and they're listening to this crap. Go ahead. I, that's all right. No, it's not crap. This is, Go this ahead. is, Go ahead. This We're is feedback from okay, the fans. We're pulling back the curtain. Go ahead. So, right. Exactly. So I told this guy, I said, Hey, I think it's a little bit of a defense mechanism for Russ because he sometimes is still, because he's new, a little starstruck since all the guests we are having on from yesteryear don't know him personally and only know me. He's much better with the current day guys who know him from the locker room. So that's what I said to him. And he said, oh, maybe you're right. Maybe you hit him on the head. I can tell you, starstruck is not a thing. Well, whatever. I, I, mean, I, I can tell you. There's one player. With, I had to, there's, one I person, there's one person I've been starstruck by. Mike Knubel? No. <laughs> no, I like to have Mike Knubel. There's one player that I've ever been around that I've been starstruck by. Who's that? Sidney Crosby. Really? Yeah. He's such a... You know, you know why? Because it was the first... I, I think it was, it was the first time I'd gone into the away locker room. I'm like a foot and a half away from Sidney Crosby. I've spent my entire life cursing Sidney Crosby. Uh, yelling at my TV, being upset that if he played in Philly, he would be like the all-time, you know, most beloved flyer because he's, 
he's a nudge and he's also in, supremely talented and has won multiple Stanley Cups, all that. We would love that, okay? Regardless of how much people hate Sidney Crosby, if he played for the Flyers, everybody would love him. Uh, and it was a moment where I went, you know what? This is a guy who's going to go down as top six all time, probably, in NHL history. I'm a foot and a half away, and I was probably like my fourth game, fifth game covering or something like that. And I was like, this I is, remember that. And I was like, this is pretty cool. I, I was like, this that. is this is pretty cool. So, I like, saying to you, go get the visiting team's response to something. Yeah. I forget what it was. Something that, happened in yeah. the game, and I said we should get we should get something from the visiting side. And I don't remember what it was, but I that was the only time that I've ever just I got the question out, and then I was just like, wow, this is really cool. It was the first time that I ever sat back and I was like, this is pretty neat. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to school for this. This is pretty cool. Yeah, that was the only time. It's yeah. never happened. Hasn't happened since. The only time I've ever been really surprised was when we interviewed uh, Ron Hextall down at Skate Zone, and his whole hand like took up my forearm. That was also kind of startling. I just <laughs> never really took into account how big of a man and how large of hands Ron Hextall. You, is were, were you were you intimidated at all when uh, we got the message from Holmgren that he didn't like your comments? No, I was mad because I was right. <laughs> he was a White Walker. Because I compared him to the book White Walkers and not the TV show. The ones in the book are mysterious. They're characters that like you, you they've also been, by the way, because Homer might even be listening to this one because he, we, we know that he at least at some point did listen to the show pretty consistently, probably still does. Hey, Paul, uh, I will point out the fact that like in the books, they are considered like an, like a mysteriously like beautifully unique group. So was I kind of saying that Paul Holmgren is uniquely beautiful? I don't know. I think you were trying to say he's stoic and icy and stone-faced. There was that too. There was that too. (laughs) I think that's what you were going for. I was being kind. I was like, that was my, you know. Uh, Anyway. Anyway, Russ. This has been fun. Another hour and a half show. Listen, we've gotten... We've gotten, I think, good feedback. Uh, a lot of good feedback on the Dave Poulin interview from last week. I will say to people who might not have been checking in, and I think I did this last week, to give an idea to people of you know, why we always joke about being the only Flyers podcast. Like I will, I will take the programming that we've done over this entire NHL pause, and I will hold this up against anybody else doing a Flyers podcast. So far since this league has gone into a pause, we have had on Flyers Hall of Famer Brian Propp. We've had on former Flyer Mike Knubel. We had on former Flyer Kevin Deneen. We had former Comcast Spectacore president and COO and also of the Flyers, Peter Luco. We've had on former Flyers coach, Stanley Cup winning coach, Craig Berube. We've had on former Flyers coach and Stanley Cup winning coach, Ken Hitchcock. We've had on former Flyer, Flyers Hall of Famer Dave Poulin. We've now had on former Flyer, future Flyers Hall of Famer, I would argue. I know some people are, have questioned that, but former, I think, former Flyers Hall of, or future, future Flyers Hall of Famer Danny Briere. And next week, Anthony, we will have on the one, the only, Iron Mike Keenan will be joining us here on Snow the Goalie uh, as a guest as we. Uh, Hit, oh, hit a bunch of popular and famous coaches who have come through the uh, Philadelphia Flyers family. And so Iron Mike will be joining us on the pod next week. So again, 
I will hold this up against anybody else who's doing a flyer show. And everybody's wonderful, fantastic. But I think that in terms of coverage, uh, in terms of providing quality content every week during the, uh, the pause, I would, I would stack up what we have against it, what anybody else has been doing. And, and that's just because we, we take it seriously. We want to give good content to people and not just kind of like sit back and, I don't know, crap into a microphone and, and complain that hockey isn't back yet. I don't know. It's just me. Anyway, thanks for listening to the show this week. Of course, follow us over on Twitter at Ant Sanfilly, at Joy on Broad, at Snow the Goalie, over on Facebook, facebook.com slash Snow the Goalie. Read the work that we do over on crossingbroad.com. And of course, you can go back and check out all the archived interviews that we've done with players, coaches, and uh, front office executives over on youtube.com slash crossingbroad. There's a, a special playlist, a video guide Craig put together for us, a playlist of Snow the Goalie interviews, and we're working on getting the last few up onto that feed as well. So make sure you go check it out. Follow us on all the social media platforms. Leave a five-star review if you feel so, uh, so inclined to do so, either on the Facebook page and or on uh, Apple Podcasts. We always love it. Makes Anthony smile. Make sure you follow us. There are two. Don't forget, there's the uh, Crossing Broad feed, which is the one that we monetize. There's the, uh, the Hockey Podcast Network one that we also uh, um, syndicate the show out to as well. So you can pick your feed. Um, one helps us financially. One helps us, you know, as part of a, a network. So I don't know, subscribe to both. I don't care. Do what you feel. Anyway, for Anthony, I'm Russ. Thanks for listening. And we will uh, talk to you again next week.